All right, welcome to the bomb hole, which is presented by Run Through a Wall, smelling salts, best smelling salts in the business. Today, co-hosting, we got Jeremy Jones. What's happening? How are you? I'm doing good. Stoked to be back in the booth. It's good to have you back, Jones. Thank you. And we got Silk D on production back there. Silk, how you doing? Doing great. Happy to be here. Looking good. Uh, mullet, bowl cut, hybrid haircuts, looking phenomenal. Thank you. And of course, uh, the man of the hour, we got Bud Keen in studio. Bud, what's happening? Not much, Chris. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Cool. Stoked to be here. Cool. Drove down from uh, Verdi. Yep, yep. Uh, just on the west edge of Reno and uh, beautiful spot. We've been there about three years, but uh, made the trek over. Love Salt Lake, too. Awesome. Well, we're glad you're here. And for our listeners that are unfamiliar, Bud is a five-time Winter Olympic coach that has won multiple Coach of the Year awards. He's worked with the best snowboarders in the world, from Sean White to Jake Blavelt. It's an endless list. He's worked with multiple national teams. He's helped pioneer snowboarding in the early days. He's been in the game since 1984. Slap some respect on that. He's got records, first descents in snowboarding, first descents in climbing. He's lived a hell of a life. It's going to be a great podcast, so let's get into it. Uh, first things first, uh, Bud. Is your real name Bud? Robert, actually. Okay. Bud's a, it's a, that's a great nickname. I've been Bud since day one. Really? Yep. Cool. Love that. Uh, I just kind of wanted to dive right into um, coaching and what you do, and I think it would be cool for the listeners to, for you to explain, like, what exactly does your workload as a coach entail? Well, right now I'm the head coach of the Canadian snowboard halfpipe team. So, uh, you know, we're basically on snow just about 12 months a year, uh, training during the off season and then competing during the main season. And uh, I just support the athletes in every way that I can. You know, I, I take care of their boards, tune them, wax them. I coach them. I video them. We go over the video. We try to get better. I mean, it's basically it. Amazing. How important is the, the mindset side of coaching? Super important. I mean, you know, my athletes, any athlete that I've ever worked with is always looking to me for, um, for assurance, for confidence. I mean, it's not just, you know, I can't, be, um, I can't be scared about what we're doing. I mean, they're doing incredible stuff, but they're also trying to lay it down in comp runs. So I kind of have to be a, a bottomless well of calm and confidence for them. And, uh, and that's a big part of it. Cool. That's amazing. I, I was reading a quote that you had, and I'm going to read it right now. It says, there is no single more powerful force in this world than in believing in yourself. More than any other factor, believing in yourself is the thing that will help you to achieve the things you want to achieve. It's literally ridiculous how true it is. Plainly put, if you believe that you can do something, then you can. Belief changes reality. I would love to hear you elaborate on your quote there. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, you know, my mom was way into sayings and quotes and things like that, and I picked that up from her. She uh, she had an amazing ability to believe and visualize, and I'll tell you a little story. She was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and given nine months to live at the age of 50. She lived to be 83, and uh, she basically did it all with belief, self-belief. She didn't enter some big uh, chemo or radiation 
therapy, she, uh, she used visualization and believing in herself, and she changed her own reality and lived for 34 years after being given nine months to live. So I kind of got that one from her, and, uh, and I'm always looking for those pieces of inspiration. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I really, words matter, and uh, confidence and self-belief can change everything. And so, uh, especially at the level that I'm coaching and that, you know, whatever level that is, I mean, you know, if you're dropping a cliff or if you're doing a dub or a triple, or if you're doing anything, I mean, it's all, you know, you gotta, you gotta connect your brain to the board under your feet and your body and everything in between. And, um, you know, just having those little reminders like that Mm -hmm. make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you believe you can't or you believe you can, you're right either way. That's right. Henry Ford said that. Is that how it is? Okay. Yep. yep. Yeah. It's crazy that triple just comes out on the list now. You know, you're throwing a dub, triple. Oh, yeah. That's just normal. Totally. <laughs> yeah. On the uh, motivation, though, you said you're a common, how do you say it, common wealth of inspiration for all your athletes, something like that. If yep. Where are you pulling it from, though? If you have to always be stable and even, yep. almost on an average to show it to different types of athletes, I'm assuming, take it different ways, different levels, Yep. where are you pulling it from? It's a good question, Jeremy. I, uh, and it's, it's actually something, you know, I had a pro career. I rode for Sims for two years and Burton for two years. But that wasn't really where I got it. I think I decided a long time ago when I was younger that I was going to live a life of adventure and do stuff. Rock climb, ice climb, uh, do first descents on my snowboard. And through, through those experiences, I've kind of hardened myself into the type of person who can offer that confidence to these athletes. I mean, you know, I don't do dubs or triples or any of that stuff. Uh, and they weren't even happening when I was riding, you know, it competitively. But, um, but the experiences that I've had over the course of my life have enabled me to be that person mm-hmm. for those kids. And uh, yeah. sick answer. Yeah, it's cool. It's actually cool to listen to you talk about it because it's not like you're you're just a person that tells them what tricks to do. Like you, you're a mentor on the hill and off the hill. It, life and snowboarding are kind of weirdly connected in this. You know, you're a role model for doing tricks, but then probably how to live life, right? Like a good coach, that's, that's what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would say that, I mean, I'm a good technical coach for sure, but you know, I, Jenner Richard, who I've worked with for a long time and uh, not anymore, but we still stay in touch. um, We actually thought that coach was kind of the wrong name, job description. It's like mentor, advisor. um, That's more what we do. I don't tell kids what to do technically, but like you said, I more model a, a way of living and a way of existing and believing that enables them to do these incredible things and, uh, and also to be good people because that's a big deal to me. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about all things Bombhole. Now, first announcement, we got Bombhole Cup April 6th and 7th at Brighton. It's going to be electric. Day one is a bank slalom for all ability levels from beginner all the way to pro. We got a skiers on boards category. If you're a skier, you can compete. You just got to ride a snowboard. We have a beginner category. So if you've been snowboarding for less than a year and you want to get in the mix, come hang at Bombhole Cup and get 
immersed in the culture. And then day two is a park showdown. We got open class, we got pro class, we got grom class, we got live music. So we definitely want to see you guys come hang out for Bombhole Cup April 6th and 7th. Also, just want to take this time to say thank you to our Patreon members. We could not do this show without you guys. So you guys are a huge help to everything we do. You know, for as little as $5 a month, you can support this show. It's kind of like public radio in a way. You know, you're just supporting things that you're into. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. You get a couple things like early access to prints. You get an opportunity to ask a question on the show. And mainly, you guys really are just supporting us doing our thing. So I wanted to say thank you for that. And another way to support is if you like the show, you can just screenshot it, post it on your Instagram, and that really helps us out a ton. You know, we don't know how the algorithm works. I I don't think anybody does, actually. We don't pay for Google ads or anything. So you guys are kind of our main promotion when people promote it. So we really appreciate when you guys do that. And I will shut up and stop talking about bomb hole things so we can get back to the show. Well, you mentioned you rode for Sims and things like that. Um, 1984, you've been on a snowboard since. Let's run it back to the early days. I want to hear what, what it was like back then. That's a great question. Yeah, so this January will be 40 years of me Damn. snowboarding full-time. <laughs> and, and I mean full-time. I mean, I didn't ski all those years. i just been snowboarding. And uh, in the early days, and I tell my kids this, they kind of get it, they kind of don't get it, but, uh, but I have to tell them. Snowboarding was hiking up the mountain with the snowboard. We weren't allowed to buy lift tickets or a season pass and ride the mountain. We had to hike up for every run that we got, every foot that we got to snowboard. And we got hassled. I mean, we got chased by the ski patrol constantly. We got chased by resort security and even the police. And we got kicked out of bars for being snowboarders. All we wanted to do was get in there and have a beer, you know, and they kicked us out because we were snowboarders. (laughs) But, um... So snowboarding was hiking up the mountain and then coming down. I mean, back then, a snowboard was about 130 centimeters long, piece of wood, had a varnish base, no, no edges, no P-Tex, and uh, had three aluminum fins in the back. Mm. The stance was set. You couldn't change it. You couldn't make it wider, narrower, or even the angles. And uh, in the springtime, we'd take a bar of ivory soap and rub it on the base to make it faster in the slush and stuff like that. So that was the only wax that we had. But um, the other thing that snowboarding was, and this was this is one of my fondest memories. We'd get in the car with our snowboards and we'd drive around. And you know those those road cuts where they've graded the side of the hill and uh, and it would get covered with snow. And we'd find one and we'd pull over and then we'd boot pack up to the side of it, make six turns down and then we'd go up the same boot pack and come down like two or three feet to the side. And we'd do that until either we tracked the whole hill out or the cops showed up. And then we had to move on to another spot. And that's what, what snowboarding was back then. Damn. Think about how far it's came. That's unbelievable. So, so how, what did it look like, the arc of, you know, how did it progress from there? Well, we, uh, we kept working on the resorts to get allowed to ride the lift. And eventually that happened. But it wasn't easy. It took two or three years. And... Um, once we did, then they naturally hired us to be the instructors to teach it because we were the guys and the girls that knew how to do it. And uh, we became uh, instructors. Back then, you had to be certified to ride the mountain. Like, you couldn't just come up with your snowboard and buy a lift ticket. You had to get tested by me or somebody else and go, okay, you can do it or you can't do it. 
And then if I said yes, you could buy a lift ticket. If I said no, you had to come back and try again. So we were certifying riders. Um, I think I said this in some of the literature that I sent you. Um, at Stowe, in particular, where I was, the front four, which are the steepest, most fearsome trails, were off limits. Even when we got allowed, you weren't allowed to go on those trails. Well, I was pissed about it, and I wanted to ride those trails, and I knew I could. So I would put my instructor's jacket on and come ripping down one of those trails right under the lift for everybody to see. And they were yelling and screaming, get off of this mountain. You know, you don't belong here. You're not welcome here. And, uh, and then I would get hauled into my boss's office. He would threaten me that I was going to get fired if I did it again. And I'd say, okay, sorry. And then I'd go out and do it again the next day. And I just kept doing that until finally they said, well, maybe they can handle that terrain. So they changed that rule, and that was the only way to get it done. Wow. That's incredible. Also, they ever chase you? Oh, yeah, they chased us. They, would, uh, they learned I, quick then, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a little story about that. Um, I moved to Squaw Valley in 1985, and they only allowed snowboarding on this little tiny lift called Searchlight at the bottom, and only on Friday and Saturday nights, never during the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was the only time. And, I mean, I get it. We were riding edgeless boards with no highbacks back then. And, uh, and maybe they were right. But uh, one day I hiked up all the way up uh, Red Dog and then made it over, to, uh, over KT-22 and eventually over the head wall and everything all the way up to the top of the Palisades. And I dropped in on National Chute on a, a snowboard with no edges and ripped down it, and then right at the bottom of Siberia Bowl, a, uh, a snow machine with two ski patrolmen pulled up, and they're like, get on, and mm-hmm. you're done. And I was like, no, I'll ride down. And they're like, you ain't riding down. Get on. You're done, because snowboarding wasn't allowed at the resort then. So they rode me all the way down Mountain Run and then told me to get lost, and luckily I didn't get arrested, but uh, that was the end of the day. But, hey. Man. It was worth it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Not quite as cowboy anymore, but... <laughs> yeah, think about... It's kind of wild Sounds to awesome. reflect on that, too, because snowboarding is pretty... It's still, like, in its infant stages and compared to most conventional sports. True. You know, there, there's not that many second-generation snowboarders, and to think, when you came up, you're getting kicked off the hill, then it's accepted in the Olympics, and now kids are... It's, it's, total, it's totally flipped, like, the counterculture aspect of it has totally flipped. Do you ever reflect on that from where you came from? Yeah, I do a lot, actually. Um, And that's a great point. You know, snowboarding is a unique sport, and it has a unique personality, and it should always maintain that. It doesn't need to alienate people to maintain that personality, but it should never completely lose the grit, you know? I mean, we got to keep that. And um, it's a we just got to keep it. I mean, you know, is it? we have this Olympic inclusion and stuff like that, and that's awesome, and that's rad. But I never want to see this get so technical that it's boring. And, uh, and we got to keep that. And, you know, people like us who, you know, are influencers in this sport need to, need to keep reminding people of that because there will be people that come along as there are. I mean, most of the kids I coach, I mean, I've been snowboarding for – three times as long as they've been alive or almost, you know? And, uh, so they, they didn't have the benefit of coming up with that history. And so, but they need to know about it. And so that we can keep that grittiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's half the draw. I think for a lot of people, the conventional sports and the, and like the, you know, do what the coach says and follow in line. And, and it was, I think the draw 
for snowboarding and skateboarding, I, I combine those in a lot of ways is, is this punk rock. And it doesn't have to be, even though it's competitive, it can still be punk rock by just the way you express yourself on a snowboard or the gear you wear. Like I think about like Heike Sorsa with a giant mohawk in the Olympics. Like, you know, we still got to stay rough around the edges, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember Heike in that 2002 Olympics uh, with that multicolored mohawk. He was doing those massive alley-oops, and uh, you didn't have to wear a helmet back then, so you could have a mohawk. Mm-hmm. And helmets basically weren't invented yet. So yeah. <laughs> that, And I kind of miss <laughs> some of that, to be honest with you. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you know, everybody, the kids need to know about that. And um, our sport can never lose, you know, completely lose that. It's actually reminds me of a situation right now with, you know, what I do, which is half pipe coaching. And we do these comps and stuff like that. And, you know, to me, someone sending it and going big is really important. I mean, that's, to me, snowboarding has always been about going big, going big with your hairstyle, with your lifestyle, Mm -hmm. with your clothing choices, Obviously, hitting big jumps, going big in the pipe, going big in life, in style, in your athletics, everything. It's not been about such technical perfection that, you know, this gets boring, to be honest with you. I want a grandmother to be able to sit there and watch a half pipe run and go, that kid is the one doing it. Instead of like, I mean, God bless the judges. We need them. We've got to have them. But I want to make sure that they maintain that, uh, you know, keep that grit in our sport too, because it can get it can get boring if it's just based on ultimate technical perfection and precision and not size amplitude, mm-hmm. which is always what the sport's been about for me. That's why I did it. That's why I was drawn to it because I didn't want to be the boring thing. I wanted to send it, and snowboarding offered that outlet to me. Yeah, anybody can appreciate going big. I want to touch on the, we interviewed Sean recently, and I talked to you before we interviewed Sean, and you mentioned your philosophy on the person that's going the biggest in the half pipe and how that's kind of the hardest trick if nobody else can do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a big thing um, for me and Sean. And, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a magical partnership in a way that I was coaching, working with him and he did have the ability to do the biggest backside air in the world. And in fact, far bigger than anyone else. And he had the, you know, he wasn't scared. He had the, the courage to do it and he had the technical ability. And um, I mean, obviously we waxed the hell out of his boards and stuff like that. So he was moving fast, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, when he did that 25 foot backside or 24 and a half foot backside air in the 2012 uh, X Games, that was at the time the biggest air in history. And, uh, and he did it in a comp run. He didn't just do it as a one hitter and then ride out of the pipe. He did it into back to back dub tens and, you know, and then onward. And, um, and at the time that was the hardest trick in the world. Cause he was the only one in the world that could do it. And as I know that was said on his podcast and I loved it, there's nothing more core than a 24, 25 foot backside air. I mean, that speaks to every single one of us. And, I've had grandmothers, again, to bring up the grandmothers, come up to me and go, yeah, how does he go so big on that first jump? And, uh, and I'm just like, well, it's a combination of a lot of things. But that, that's what people remember, even ones that don't know anything about the sport. Yep. That'll be badass in 30 years. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Like Ingmar's it's timeless. Hair. Yeah, yeah, it's timeless. It's timeless. Good point. Yeah. Do you think he would have gone 30 feet if his stance was 30 inches? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. He definitely rides a, a wide stance. And you know what? It's funny because it had an effect on me. I would break his boards in. We traveled the world with 12 of his boards, and they were eight pipe boards, four slope boards, and they all had the same stance on them. You know, the Burton 3D pattern. We had them custom made in Craig's uh, facility. Um, the JG had a lot or most to do with it. And they did the 3D pattern in 25 and a quarter inches wide, an inch and a half back, and that was the only way you could ride them. So it was, you know, we never had to mess around with how his stance, we just screwed the things on to the board and went. But I broke him in. I also broke his boots in. So I was riding a 25 and a quarter inch stance, an inch and a half back, and he's, oh. I'm five six. And I mean, it was like splitting my, but I got stretched out pretty good. And I got used to it so much so that now I ride like a 24 inch stance, which is still wide, but I can't go narrower than that. I just feel unstable. So, um, yeah, I don't know why he went for such a wide stance, but uh, he certainly made it work. Oh, that's for sure. Silk, do you want to uh, hit Lane's Lane Knack's Patreon question? Yeah, we got a Patreon question from Lane Knack. Shout out all the Patreon members. Yeah, Lane. I remember growing up, Clancy always telling me that you would tell him if you can't do something head high in half pipe, just don't do it. Equating that to today's super pipes, at what height do you tell kids to just stop doing tricks these days? Great question. Um, and thanks, Lane. And I uh, hope to see you soon, man. Good hearing from you. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, we're riding 22-foot super pipes now. I mean, it's basically a North Shore-sized wave frozen in ice. So the expectations are bigger. I mean... Unfortunately, there's still people out there doing things in the three to five foot range, and I, I hate to see it. And uh, I certainly wouldn't encourage any of my athletes to do that. I mean, they might be able to get it done, but <laughs> what's the point? I mean, let's go big. Let's, you know, dial it back a little bit. If you can't do something amazing, you know, big, then do something a little less amazing big. Um, it's not all about the rotations and the spins. I mean, you know, it, it matters, but if, if it's three to five or even six feet out in a 22-foot pipe, it just doesn't look good. It's not a good look. I mean, I want my kids going 8, 10, 12, 18, 20 feet or, or more. And uh, that's, that's what has, has meaning for me. Um, so the, the height threshold has gone up for sure because of the size of the pipes. Because, I mean, there's nothing worse than riding a 22-foot pipe and just riding the pipe or maybe getting a little above the lip. That's, I just don't think that that's using the pipe properly. So, mm -hmm. you know, those guys were riding 9-foot, 12-foot, 13-foot pipes. So we were talking head high back then. Now we're talking double, triple, quadruple head high. That's where they should be at. Dang. Like that philosophy. Boss. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty simple when you look at it like that. Until up. you drop into the wall, though, bud, and you're going Mach 100, and you're like, don't speed check, don't speed check, don't. And I just speed check through um, head high or um, whatever, you know? Yeah. I think there's a degree of getting comfortable with the pace in there. That That's something that just, I, I grew up in the 18, six, you know, 18 foot era, and still that 22, I'm not comfortable with the pace. You got to go fast. I mean, even me, I can ride a 22. I don't anymore, but uh, I think I, uh, I posted a, 
about a head high, maybe six foot backside air. When, on my 53rd birthday, Gabe took that picture. Yep. It was in the North Star pipe. And, uh, but since then, you know, I got a, I got a chill on the pipe ride and, and, um, because I have a job to do and I got to show up for work every day. And I can do it, but if I eat shit, I'm going to freaking get hurt. So uh, in the 18-footer, that's where I, my um, pipe riding, I think, peaked as well. Because I, I could just, you know, the speed that you carry in an 18-footer just matched with what I was capable of at the time. And uh, once you went to the 22-footer, I mean, you got to go a lot faster because mm-hmm. you're still climbing the wall for four more feet before you even exit the pipe. And uh, you got to go really fast. I mean, I remember when the first 18-footer came out, it was at the U.S. Open, and we didn't know how to ride it because we're like, man, you got to go so fast. Now an 18-footer seems like a mini ramp compared to a 22. Totally. That's a good point. Well, let's continue down the path of uh, early days. So when you were talking about these these days of snowboarding, uh, at what point did you switch over to like a snowboard with edges? First uh, snowboard with edges that I ever rode was a Sims Switchblade. I think it was a 160. It had camber, a little, just a little bit, but it was a revelation. I mean, it was cool. Um, and uh, I'll never forget it. Actually, a good story about that. Um, before that even happened, the Woody, uh, the Burton Perf- Performer Elite 150 came out. And it had edges because they were making them in, in Innsbruck then. And, uh, but it still had the fins. And this was like Chuck Yeager, like the test pilot. We were like, what do you think would happen if we took the fins off? And we're like, and we all looked around at each other and we're like, let's try it. So we took the side fins off, not the middle one, because that would have been insane. The thing, you wouldn't have been able to control it at all. So we left the middle one in, but we took the side fins off and then everybody watched while one of us dropped in and, and was, we were like, it works. It, it still works, but we still left the center fin in for another year because again, that would have been absolutely insane to take that out. But then the same process played out with that. We, uh, we were like, one day we were like, well, it has edges. We should be able to take the center fin out, but maybe not. And so finally we did. And then one of us dropped in and we were like, it worked. <laughs> so, uh, and then we went on to cambered boards, the switchblade, like I said, and, and, and on from there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just to think that we never had edges and at first, and we had the fins and then, then we got edges and fins. And then finally we had the balls to try it without the, the fins. We, we should hit a guest question from Jeff Kramer, too, from a Patreon member as well. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Kramer says, Hey, bud, I remember seeing you ride back in, the, back in the stove for the first time. You had a quite unusual setup, a Burton balance with hard boots. I also remember you being able to boost overhead in the half pipe in those hard boots. What finally made you swap over to the softies? Yeah, Jeff. Good to hear from you. Thanks for the question, man. It was so good to see you at the uh, World uh, Quarters last year at Mammoth. I'm looking forward to this year. Um, And it was always a pleasure uh, hanging with you and riding with you. But uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, I mean, I started riding hard boots because I wanted to do first descents of steep, gnarly stuff in in Yosemite and the High Sierras and actually down in South America. and I needed something that would take a crampon. Back then, you couldn't put crampons on snowboard boots. Now you can. But uh, I, so I needed to switch to like a mountaineering boot, a hard boot. So I rode these uh, these pink. Uh, they were 
uh, Koflak Veluga Light. They were like a ski mountaineering boot, and they would click into a binding. And, um, and that would enable me to climb gnarly stuff with ice axes and crampons and then s- click in and make a descent. And that's how I started riding the hard boots. And, uh, and then, you know, I quickly found that it was inconvenient to switch back and forth, so I just stayed in the hard boots. And, um, and then there was the half pipe, and I was with my kids, and I was like, well, I want to ride the half pipe, so I'm dropping in. And it worked, so I just kept doing it. <laughs> yeah, it seems, it seems wild to think about snowboarding in hard boots to me. I mean, I've, I've been in ski boots. It, it should be like a prison sentence to wear those things. You ever walk around a lodge or like, I remember I hiked up Grizzly Gulch in them a couple of years ago and it's like, like post-holing every step and they're just uncomfortable and clunky. Yeah. I actually am feeling pain <laughs> listening to you talk about it. It hurts to hear. I don't know. I can't. It, that seems impossible. You yeah. could rail some turns on those babies though, That's right? That's for sure. You could yeah. rail some turns on yeah. them. Yeah. I Well, you know, at the time, uh, like prior to Jeff, working with Jeff, um, I was coaching racing too, so hard boots were happening. You know, that was the Jeremy Jones, John Percy, Thomas O'Brien, Justin Kadash, even Jesse Huffman rode hard boots right. uh, way back in the day. But uh, one thing I'll say that hard boots helped me with is that uh, I learned to just stand on my bottoms of my feet. Like it wasn't like I think in ski racing, I don't know because I don't really know that world, but uh, I think. You know, you use a lot of pressure against the cuffs of the boots and to the side and to the fore and back and things like that. I found that riding the hard boots made me kind of just stand on my board and um, and not use a bunch of pressure against the cuffs. And that transferred over to the way that I ride soft boots now. So. Damn, amazing. You ever, have, yeah, you ever like, sense. eject out? I always think about We don't eject out of our bindings, but you eject in the hard boots? Or? No, no, never did. And... Uh, Thankfully, because there were some bad spots that I was in that that would have been disastrous. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about this. There's a lot of people that uh, are looking for their lane in snowboarding. And you see the hard boots. uh, I think people still do it racing like giant slalom and stuff, I'm pretty sure, right? But um, what I would think would be a good opportunity for somebody, an untapped in lane is uh, like a street rail snowboarder wearing hard boots. You know what I mean? Like you're (laughs) you're the only one out there. You know, this is the hard boot. Jib, hard boot jibber, a hard boot jibber. What do you think about that, bud? Do you think there's room for that? Well, I mean, there's room for anything, but I mean, you know, there's people that can juggle eight balls at a time. There's people that, you know, there's pro pogo stickers and stuff like that. I think it all kind of falls. Do you remember that, uh, what was it, uh, Lance Mountain that uh, in the Bones Brigade when he was a pro pogo sticker? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, there's people that grow their fingernails 50 inches long. And I mean, I guess, do whatever you want. But so what you're saying is How are you going to be- coach this? <laughs> it's going to be like, yeah, all right. Just because you can, maybe you sh- doesn't mean you should. <laughs> right. Yeah, true. All right. Well, I, I, I'm still looking forward to seeing it if somebody does it. Yeah, I mean, that's... A- that's the athlete of the year, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You survive a year of that in streets and hard boots, yeah. digging too. I mean, yeah. you could dominate that category. You could own it. <laughs> there you go. You could. I mean, you get some type of award just for walking around in ski boots all, yeah. all year. That's that's worth of some type of trophy. It's an NBD and yeah. will remain <laughs> such, I'm Definitely. sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Somebody looking for a lane. I hope they, they follow that. So then, and then you ended up riding for Sims, right? 85 to 86? Yep, yep. I uh, moved out uh, from Vermont because they didn't allow snowboarding to uh, 
Tahoe, and uh, Soda Springs and Boreal did allow snowboarding. And so I got a job teaching at Boreal and Soda Springs. And, I mean, back then, being a good snowboarder was just somebody who could make good turns left and right, you know. I mean, a jump back then was like three feet long, three feet high, and it went to flat. And we would just jump and eat shit, and that, and we were like, yay, you know. So um, anyway, I was coming down the mountain one day making turns, and, uh, and at the bottom, a kid named Scott Clum came up to me. And um, he's not a kid anymore, but he was a kid back then. And he was like, hey, man, you know, you're good and you want to ride for Sims. And so he connected me with Tom Sims. And I actually went down to Santa Barbara where Sims was made then and stayed in, uh, in Tom's treehouse down there and then went in and picked my own Sims uh, Kidwell round tail, first real freestyle board off of the racks. And, uh, and, and then I was off and I was on Sims after that. Amazing, amazing. And then went on to do Burton, looks like. Went on to do Burton. I, uh, I was a chef in a former life, and, uh, and I cooked at a little restaurant called Smokey's right at the head of, of Squaw Valley. And it was a breakfast place, but we also did dinner. So uh, I worked there, and like uh, Jacoby and all the Burton team, like Keith Duckboy Wallace and other kids would come in and hang out and have dinner and stuff like that. So I got to know them. And by and large, I got recruited by Burton to switch over. And I mean, that was, I mean, it's unbelievable back in the day. I mean, when I rode for Sims, it was like with Terry Kidwell, um, Craig Kelly, Sean Palmer, Tim Wendell. Uh, I mean, the, the list of characters was unbelievable. They were rock stars. I mean, I was there, but I wasn't them. But it was cool to be there and be part of that whole scene. It was awesome. And when I switched over to Burton, it was the same thing. I think... That same year, Craig switched over to Burton, and uh, and then it was Craig, Jacoby, Keith Duckboy Wallace, and many others, and uh, so it was a pretty special time. Wow. Yeah, that's an era. Legendary. All right, we're going to take a break and talk about Woodward Park City. Now, we're nine to fivers here at the bomb hole. A lot of times after work, it's dark. You know what? Woodward's got you covered. They got lights. So you might see Silk D, when he gets done production... He's out there busting down the Woodward Park. Uh, so it's great setup. They got all the stuff for beginners. If you want to learn how to slide your first box, if you want a bunny slope and learn how to ride a snowboard for the first time, all the way up to great kickers. They got a super pipe at peak season, which is very rare. We're talking a lot about half pipes. They got a great half pipe. So be sure to check out Woodward Park City. One thing that I think is cool is I see a lot of the kids in there practicing into the foam pit practicing their back sevens, and then they can go take it out to snow, which is a really cool opportunity for kids to progress. They're all about progression. And they also have $40 lift tickets, which is unheard of in this day and age. So got to respect them for that. You can pay $119 and get a month of unlimited outdoor riding. That's a great deal. So if you're looking for a fun place to Bust down on your snowboard with some good friends, good people. Be sure to check out Woodward Park City. Seems like back in the day, uh, from my experience in the show, like a lot of people's careers really short. And I, I was thinking about why. And you think about snowboarding was so young that the people that are buying the snowboards are all kids. Like there isn't anybody over the age of 30 buying a snowboard because it's kind of this like counterculture, kind of like a, a 
it's a it's a young young person's game, uh, and, and so it seems like people's careers were cut like pretty short back in the day. Would yeah. you agree? No, I agree a hundred percent. It's a you know it was a youth market. It was yeah. a very active and exciting market, but it was definitely like okay, you know, you can be a snowboard pro for a while, and now it's time to grow up. Mm-hmm. But things have changed these days, which is awesome. Do you yeah. think that? Sorry, Chris. No, go ahead. Do you think that that actually was it about the careers being so short because there was a pro snowboarder, but then there was only this brand and that brand really to take care of these pros. And then, so the, the evolution of even pros having longer careers meant that these early pros had to now be industry pros somehow, whether they started a brand or whether they other participated it on that business level. It seemed like you had to evolve quicker to make that happen, maybe? Yeah, I agree, Jeremy. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there just wasn't room. There were kids coming up, and uh, I mean, how, how long can you wear neon pink and green and, you know, be an adult? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that kind of accelerated that, uh, that transition process as well. But again, there just wasn't room for, you know, for a 30-year-old or even a 28-year-old to be like a, a pro and getting, be taking a paycheck and, um, and a spot on the team. There were kids hungry coming up. And, uh, and again, you know, that, that time was just, uh, you know, more than ever, I think that time was where snowboarding needed to stay young and needed to keep moving these kids up and, and throwing themselves at it and doing a good job at it. But, uh, but you know, just they're gonna live forever, you know, and freaking go for it type yeah. of thing. It was good. Yeah, and it's what what a cool time to think about the possibilities of like, wow, is it possible to do a three hundred and sixty? Is it possible to go as big as we think we can go? And then to just see the evolutions, unbelievable. But I think that exciting times, like if you were to if you were to watch a a clip of Ayumu doing a triple cork and show it to you in like nineteen eighty five, you'd probably think you were like on crystal meth or something, right? You'd be like, what is, what is that? I saw that in a dream <laughs> yeah. once. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, it's come a long way for sure. And, and you know, it's, uh, but each stage and each step along the way, every little line in the sand and barrier has been something that we as snowboarders have said, we, we want to get there. We want to go past that. And then once you step past it, then there's the next step. And let's step past that and keep going. And, I remember when I uh, when I was riding in the 1988 U.S. Open halfpipe, which is the first U.S. Open halfpipe. I mean, it was like three feet tall. It was hand dug. There were no decks. It was just two spines facing each other, and uh, and a, a a frontside three and a cab three. I learned a cab three at the U.S. Open because I saw some guy do it, and I was like, I can do that. It was a, a cabalarial, and. Uh, and so I tried it, and it worked. And so, you know, I mean, but that's what it was back then. And then uh, there were a few of us that, you know, probably 10 guys in the world that could do a front five. I could do it. Not the best, but I could get it done. And, uh, and then when I started coaching, quote, unquote, um, I was helping people to learn 720s, and then it became 900s, and then it was, you know, 1080s, 1260s, 424. I mean, it just keeps going. And every generation sees the sees beyond what's going on. I mean, that's everybody sees that as kind of their responsibility, whether it's rails, whether it's 
you know, urban slaying, whether it's backcountry, whether it's racing, whether it's halfpipe, whatever, everybody's trying to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's, yeah, it's interesting to think about too. I feel, I feel a little bit of pity for the kids nowadays coming up. So you think about, you know, I'll speak on my experiences. Like growing up, you know, I was watching Ross Powers' run, and, and I'm, you know, it's, it's like McTwist, front nine, back three, switch McTwist. Here I am doing 540s. I'm like, I think I, I could maybe get there. I could, there. It seems like I could get there. But if you're a kid and you're 12 and you're watching Scotty James and, and Sean White and Ayumu and you're seeing these runs, it's like it's, it's, a, it's a gnarly task to, to look at that. And, and then obviously you, you work your way up from local events and you're the best in your area and that's attainable. And you, but it, wow, it's, it's just unbelievable. It is. I mean, what you have to do these days to be successful at the highest level is, it's pretty nuts. But, uh, but luckily you have the, the example of the people that went before you to build on. Mm-hmm. And that's what the kids of today have. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about your transition from riding into coaching. How did you find that? Yep. Um, you know, I transitioned to coaching, uh, I was 29 years old. It was 1989. They needed a coach. They looked around. They're like, you're the oldest guy who's had a pro career. Would you like to be a coach? And the idea was that uh, they, you know, snowboarders could maybe get better quicker if they had someone guiding them. So I became a coach and uh, never looked back. That was 89. That was 34 years ago. And things worked out. And I found out that... Um, that coaching, as we kind of have discussed earlier in this interview, um, is is about technical, you know, technical guidance, but it's more about life guidance and, you know, how to believe in yourself and how to deal with setbacks and how to keep at it and how to, how to get there. And it's not, you know, so much about technical snowboarding. It's also one thing that I'm really proud about, probably the thing I'm most proud about in my career, is that I've, I've worked with Champion Rail, Slayers, urban slayers, backcountry kids, racers, halfpipe riders, and slope-style big air riders, and um, and help them to find their way in each one of those things. I haven't been narrowing their focus. I've been helping them to broaden their focus. Cool. And uh, I think normally coaching is associated with narrowing someone's focus. And I've always tried to work against that and look at the kids that I was working with and go, what are you really good at and what do you really like? Let's go there. And it's kind of worked out. Wow. What do you think about coaching an elderly street rider? <laughs> do you think you have <laughs> capabilities? Because I know someone. <laughs> I got a friend. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, I'm asking for a friend here. <laughs> um, I think I can work with anyone, anytime, anywhere because it's about – you know, um, one thing, uh, it's, uh, it's about looking at someone and figuring out what they want to do and where they want to go and, uh, and maybe figuring out what might be holding them back in any one way or area and then, uh, and then helping them to figure it out. I say to my athletes all the time, this isn't a dictatorship, it's a partnership. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I'm listening to the sound of your voice. I'm looking in your eyes. I'm wa- looking at your body mannerisms. Um, I'm listening to what you're saying and uh, and just putting everything together from there and working with a person, not necessarily a snowboarder, but a person. And uh, just let's let's get to where you want to go. 
cool. Let's talk after that. I mean, I'll let them know. <laughs> now, now, Bud, I, I, uh, I want to introduce you something that you could um, maybe add to your coaching repertoire as something that is you could put in your uh, kind of uh, repertoire of things to help people improve. These are uh, run-through-wall smelling salts. Now, um, if you Thank ever you. watch hockey or football, you'll see people, they, they snap one, and it makes them more alert. You kind of wake up, kind of, it kind of shocks your respiratory system. And uh, we started a company called Run Through Wall Smelling Salts as a complete joke because we started doing them on air. And now uh, use them all the time. Take them snowboarding, do them, you know, do them right before you drop in. I, I race dirt bikes. I always do them on the line before the gate drop. Um, so I'm just saying, you know, you might want to do some testing and maybe bring this to your guys right before the big, you know, half pipe run. I think it's fine by the IOC and all that. I don't, yeah. There's nothing illegal about Wake it. Wake them up when they're KO'd. <laughs> I'm sure you have. It could be good. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You, you pop it. And then, oh, oh, it's a good batch. That's a good batch. Yeah, it's a strong batch. Do you like snap it or just yeah, squeeze just, it? You can just squeeze it or you crack can, it in just half. A little either way. Bro, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. Ooh, it's like wasabi. <laughs> it's like wasabi. <laughs> Would you like one? Hey. <laughs> Silk, you got some back there? Yeah, I got Cracks all. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. awake. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> wasabi. <laughs> I love yeah. wasabi, wasabi, by the way. and chlorine. <laughs> we, yeah, this is the wasabi flavor. I'm going to do one more just back to back. It's been a minute. Ooh. Ooh. All right, now that we're was, rolling. That was good. Now We've we're taken rolling. them to the eye before a button. It, it's not recommended. I'll yeah. bet. I'll yeah, bet. we do not recommend <laughs> But it is a new experience all the same. <laughs> we'll send you home with a bottle. You can keep it at the pipe. When somebody's feeling a little lazy and they can't, they can't find the juice... You know, that's the perfect... Who needs a Red Bull when you got run through a wall smelling? No, exactly. I mean, Red Bull can make you jittery. This is a different deal, for yeah. sure, but I think straight it works. To the head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, straight to the head. Um, cool. I, I wanted to go back because, you know, I talked to Jake Blavelt this morning. I know you worked with him uh, pretty closely. And one thing he brought up to me that was interesting was a lot of the things that you did weren't just... You know, when I think of coaching, I think of... Go and do, let's just say, a jump, for example, or a half-pipe coach. A half-pipe coach for your, like, you just go to the half-pipe, and you just, you practice your tricks, and then you film it, and you review the tricks, and that's kind of what you do all day. That's what I had in my head. And and Jake brought up, it was kind of a totally different experience for him, where a lot of it was riding the mountains, doing gates, doing gates regular, doing gates switch, riding through the wood switch, like, just teaching the fundamentals of being a great snowboarder. Do you want to yeah. elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I decided a long time ago um, in as a coach that I was never going to do anything that didn't actually help. I, I mean, I see a lot of coaches out there and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of co- great coaches. There's some mediocre coaches. I mean, unfortunately, there are some coaches that aren't that good. But um, I decided a long time ago I wanted to be a coach that made a difference all the time. And, uh, and again, we didn't have time to do stuff that didn't make a difference. Having said that, it wasn't just going to the park all the time. It was, uh, it was doing, you know, gates. I mean, I wanted the kids that rode with me to be able to make good turns, regular and switch, to have confidence. Um, you know, again, it was all funneling into them hitting big jumps and doing big tricks and then eventually the half pipe. But I felt that the confidence that they would get from running those gates, even though it was a pain in the ass sometimes for them, um, and riding in the wood switch. I mean, you know, who does that? 
And so I'm proud to see Jake's video parts and all the video parts of kids that I've worked with over the years hit and jump switch, switch front side, switch backside, landing switch in powder. I mean, these are hard things to do, especially for a kid coming from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But I like to think that the skills that, uh, that I help them to, to get out of themselves, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, through the means that we're talking about, uh, made a difference and enabled them to have that confidence because it's all about confidence. A hundred percent. They that, did. That's a full, I hate to say this, but that's a full Miyagi scenario. Yeah. That's a full Mr. Miyagi. Why am I washing the windows? Why am I washing the windows? I don't know why I'm doing this. You know what I mean? And then next thing you know, you know, you're doing your karate moves. It's the same for Blava. Why am I riding through these trees switch? What, what are we doing here? And then next thing you know, he's doing switch sailfishes on a step down and whistler into powder. And yep, it's, it's yep. kind of a cool thing to think about that. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I'm really glad that Jake looks at it that way because, uh, because we knew that Jake, me and Jenner, who, uh, you know, really mentored Jake, um, we knew that we had a champion. We knew what Jake was capable of. And uh, it was just a matter of putting him in positions over and over and over again to become that person who he eventually became. And uh, we were hard on him. And again, he just wanted, just like any kid, he wanted to go to the park all the time. But uh, we knew that um, he wasn't going to get everything that he needed in the park. And then when he went to the park, he was like, damn, you know, now I can do whatever I Mm -hmm. want. And uh, yeah, so actually a little story about Jake that I'll tell you is uh, in addition to what we're already talking about, I remember there was a jump at the bottom of a long flat slope that had like some rough spots getting into it. It was a horrible run-in. And, um, and we were like, we're going to session this jump. And Jake's like, what do you mean? I mean, you know, the run-in sucks. It's flat. It's like, and it's rough. And I was like, you know what? If one of these days you ever get the opportunity to go into the backcountry and film as a filming rider, you're going to have some of the roughest run-ins that you've ever seen. Yet you still need to get to the jump with enough speed to do something. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Because as we all know, those run-ins to jumps in the backcountry, man, I mean, they're not groomed. They're dug with a shovel, and then somebody runs in, and somebody else runs in, and then finally it's ready to hit. But it's not easy to even get to the jump. So uh, by the end of that day, and I mean, and we were hiking too. They were hiking up and then coming down. And by the end of that day, I think it was him and Kennedy and some others, uh, they were actually doing tricks on the jump. And we were like, all right. And then look at the foreshadowing too, because I was at the U.S. Open. Jake won the U.S. Open in a snowstorm (laughs) where there was no speed. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, case in point, I mean, maybe he was a dark horse because he he was young and he was hungry. But he also had the skills to deal with it. He had the skills to deal to switch his lenses, lenses out to a low light lens, to power through the powder, to adjust his tactics, to adjust his line, his edging, everything like that. And uh, and again, I like to think that the things that we put him through helped mm-hmm. him to to get through. There's an interesting paradox of the coaching you're describing to the coaching that I think I see a lot of, especially you know. There's the bristle setups into an airbag that people ride all summer, right? Where they, they just, they drop in the bristles and they chuck into an airbag and they, their air for air awareness, for trick repetition, it's unbelievable. But I feel like I'm starting to see snowboarders whose air awareness and acrobatics supersedes their ability to ride a snowboard, uh, versus 
where you look at, you know, Jake and his career and his fundamentals is probably the exact opposite of what we're describing. Do you see some of that being damaging um, in the way people are training these days? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the advent of airbags has been a double-edged sword. It certainly helped to push the, um, you know, the, the technical limit of, you know, doubles, triples, quads, um, and, and unbelievable spins. And, um, and in some ways, acrobatics have superseded, um, you know, actual uh, air awareness and, and, well, technical ability on a snowboard. And I never want to see that go away. So uh, I think airbags are a tool, but they can be overused. And I think that needs to reflect. And I believe that people like myself and others are helping to shape the expectations and what pe- tricks or people are, are doing. I mean, we're not telling them what to do, but we're, it's not just about the next 180, you know. And, um, and the airbag thing can help, you know, has the danger of promoting that type of attitude and not good snowboarding and not good edging and things like that, which, I mean, you know, the one thing that all of us have in common, whether we're hitting rails, whether we're in the backcountry, whether we're in the urban environment, whether we're in the half pipe is making left and right turns. And that's what it's all about. Left and right turns regular and left and right turns switch. And, uh, and in order to call yourself a snowboarder, I think that you got to maintain uh, strong skills in those areas. And that's the way I want to see the, the sport develop, not just, you know, people that just learned how to snowboard and are doing, you know, 1800s. That's some of the wisest shit I've ever heard on this show, bud. Thanks. And your voice is insane, dude. Just keep going. I'm just over here in the zone. Yeah, we're just in the middle of a book on tape, just mesmerized (laughs) by the wise words Uh, that are being spewed. Why are you stopping? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I will throw throw one more thing in on that. It's, uh, you know, people say to me, and this is right along the lines of what we're talking about. People ask me, they say, do you think that the advent of airbags has adversely affected the progression of snowboarding, meaning allowing it to be too fast and not enough about actual left and right turns and snowboarding. And my answer to them is that, you know what, we've always had airbags. It was called powder. Mm -hmm. We got a two or three foot dump. We'd build a jump like this and say, everybody goes upside down today. That's how all my guys learned how to do it. And, you know, I mean, that's what we did back then. You land on your head, you're okay. I have a question on on the coaching, like, do you see it coming at you? Like you have to find yourself coaching. Do you find yourself coaching against the way the judges are judging? Because I see the kids, they're going to respond to the score. Like no matter how close they are with the coach, it just seems like, but the score coach, right? And then, yeah, but just trust me here. The air is your biggest trick right now. So go 25 feet and keep it a method, right? Yep. So how often is that like a, a thing for you that you have to kind of, I mean, kind of break the rider to some extent? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great question, Jeremy. And actually, it, uh, I can speak to this one because it's happening right now. And it's a subject that's on my mind and fresh right now. Um, and I have actually had meetings with the judges. Um, and I do on a regular basis. And most, not most coaches, a lot of coaches do because it's up to us to help shape that judging criteria so that it doesn't get 
out of whack and become too sterile and stuff like that. And that's what we started off talking about is snowboarding's about going big. It's about amplitude. That's what it, that's it, that's how it started. And, um, and not just big out of the pipe, but big in every way. Um, I work actively as a coach with the judges to help keep the judging criteria something that reflects the values of the sport as I see them. And, you know, maybe as I see them is just my opinion, and it is, but I think I have a historical perspective here, and, and, you know, I love this sport. I've devoted my life to this sport, and I want to see it be just as rad for the next 40 years as it was for the last 40 years that I've been doing it. Um, I never want the judging criteria to shape what the athletes are doing because I believe that that's gaming the judging system is going, oh, well, this is what they want to see or this is what they want to see and this is what they want to see. I work with uh, two athletes from Canada right now as part of the Canadian snowboard team. Uh, Brooke DeHaunt, she's 18 and an Olympian. And Liam Gill, they're both from Calgary. They're both super rad, and I'm super proud of both of them. Um, I believe in them like, uh, you know, they, they're going all the way, and we're going all the way. Brooke, um, it's really notable for a woman to go into the wall with the speed that she does. She goes big, and she does amazing tricks. And she has some instabilities right now. We're working on it, and, uh, and her runs are getting smoother and smoother and smoother. But I don't want her to go small so that she can be smooth right now. I want her to go big and work on being smooth. And that's what she wants too. That's amplitude. That's real snowboarding. And that's what I promote. And, uh, and that's what we're working on. Now, the judges sometimes give her good scores and sometimes mark her down for being a little unstable. To me, going big and being a little unstable is better than going small and being more stable. That's just the way that I approach the sport. It's all about amplitude. It's about going for it. I want to see people sending it, and I believe that that's a path with heart that's going to get us where we want to go, and uh, and we won't back down on it. So we're not looking at you know the the decimal points of the judges' scores as much. We want to get there. We want to win, but we want to go big and then win instead of going small and being perfect. And uh, and that's a discussion that's playing out in judging with me right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's. That's interesting. I like that philosophy. And thinking on judges, I just feel as though judges, I, 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 my heart goes out to them sometimes because it's, it's a thankless job. Nobody gives a shit when you get it right. And everybody's coming at you sideways if you got it wrong. Or if people, are, even if you, you think you got it right, people are going to think you got it wrong half the time. And everybody's doing big, gnarly runs, huge rotations. It's, you know, in... in the mid 2010s when Sean was winning everything, it was obvious. Oh, that's Sean. It, yeah, Sean won. Whatever. Right nowadays, there's there's it's a little bit trickier because there's a lot of heavy runs going on. Um, I guess thinking about the judges' perspective, like it, it's it is a sport that isn't tangible. It's not a race where if you do a race, I beat you. It's subjective, is what I'm getting at. Um, I mean, how do you feel about the subjectivity of the sport with the judges and their roles? Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, uh, the judges are, you know, they're, uh, they give scores. And if, you, if they hooked you up, you're stoked and you're not going to say anything about it. And if, uh, if you didn't get the score that you wanted, you're going to be pissed about it. I mean, we have a saying in coaching 
that sometimes you get the elevator and sometimes you get the shaft. And uh, when you get hooked up, you're just going to be happy and go off to the award ceremony. If you get screwed, you're going to be bummed about it. But uh, they're doing the best that they can. That's why it's important that people like me and other coaches and athletes have regular conversations with them so that they understand what we believe is good snowboarding. And, um, and they're going to make mistakes. And, you know, we're all human. And, um, and, you know, probably I'm always thinking that my kids are doing it more right than other athletes maybe. Um, I'd like to think that I don't have like a selfish attitude towards it that way. Again, I just want to see good snowboarding, whoever's doing it. But, um, but you know, these judges, um, it is a thankless job, and I don't envy them, but we need them. Mm-hmm. We need them in this sport. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because even though we want the right result, we don't want to micromanage the whole system. Like say, oh, a, a 1080 is worth this amount of points, you know, like in gymnastics or something yep, like that. good point. And uh, we don't want to go there. We want to keep it a little loose so that it's – you know, I mean, when I put together a run and, you know, uh, Sean's 2012 run in, in the uh, X Games is case in point. And um, when we put together a run, it's choreographed. And what we're trying to do is to influence emotionally five individuals that are sitting at the bottom of a pipe looking at it, just watching it, you know. And it's not like, you know, I mean, if we could have a machine do it, we then you just do that. But we don't. We want human beings sitting there. And you're trying to influence them emotionally. You're trying to have them go, damn, that was sick. And, you know, even if it wasn't the most technical run or even if it had like an instability, if all the things were there and you're just like, wow, that person was going for it. That's what, you know, like Sean's 100 in the 2012 Olymp- uh, X Games. You know, I mean, some people agreed with it. Some people didn't. But the fact of the matter is, is that Elijah Teeter and Eddie Wall were sitting in that judging booth and they're pretty darn core snowboarders. And uh, they were like, you know, and I've watched the run. I have it on film. I've watched it a million times and it's not perfect. But at that moment, on that night, they were like 100. That was a human being 100% going for it and getting it done. And uh, then the other thing about the run is that it was a 25 foot, 24 and a half foot backside air, front dub 10, cab dub 10, which are like, then skyhook. So slow, like it was, it had its ups, it had its downs. It was like a blues riff where, you know, you're going for it and then you hit some soulful notes and slow things down. Then he goes into a double McTwist 12 and into a front dub 12. So it was, it was, uh, you know, it, it, it had its rise and fall. It was, and I mean, the sky hook is probably one of the coolest tricks in half pipe ever. I mean, it looks like he's not even going to make it. It looks like he's going to land on his head. And then at the last second, he comes around and just stomps it and pumps into the backside wall. So, um, so yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was beautiful listening to you talk about how that crafted run, choreographed to blues. Yeah, I think fundamentally, whether it's competitive snowboarding, whether you're filming a video part, it's a run, it's a single trick. When you watch it, it makes you feel something. When you, you watch something, it can be, I watched Scott Stevens, my friend, do a tail block the other day in the snow. And I watched the clip on the camera, I go, ha, ah, oh my God, that was amazing. Because he like stalled it out. Like it made me feel something. Mm-hmm. And in half pipe, I think that there's so many different ways it comes. Like when I watch Ayumu, I feel something because he lands with his hands in his pocket at the top of the transition. Look, he doesn't even look like he pumps, and he goes 20 feet out. And then I watch, you know, Scotty James, for example. 
he just did this switch McTwist revert I saw him post. And, you know, it was so fresh and it was so just different. And I know Pat did one regular years ago at Mount Hood, but just seeing that innovation, it made me feel something. And I love, I, I feel as though judges should reward the tricks that nobody else is doing as opposed to the back-to-back spins that 10 people are doing in a row you know the switch mctwist revert or the you know taylor gold double michael chuck late 180 you know those types of things like i love uh innovation and just people that are unique in their own right i feel like should be rewarded as well yeah yeah i agree 100 percent. it's uh you know, uh, Elijah is an example of uh, someone who did things a little differently, but he still did the stock stuff. So that's kind of the way, and Scotty's the same. He's got that switch McTwist pullback, and it's sick. It's amazing. It's a great way to start a run, and nobody else is doing it. So mm-hmm. therefore, it becomes very high on the difficulty level because mm-hmm. nobody else is doing it. Um, but yeah, you know, kind of the for me, the, the, uh, the formula, best formula for success is to do something a little different, put your own signature on it. Don't do everything different because then nobody gets it, but uh, but still have the stock badass stuff, but with your own flavor thrown in there for mm-hmm. sure. That's good. And it doesn't have to be overly technical. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk Smith Optics. Now, there's been a lot of hype around Smith's line of the imprint 3D goggles that are custom made for each rider's face. The technology is the first of its kind, providing the best possible fit and optical experience. Smith just released two new additions to the collection, the 3D Squad and the 3D Squad XL. The first you'll notice is the goggles fit perfectly to your face with less foam bulk. The precision fit eliminates common issues like wind gap, light leaks, and gets rid of the pressure around your temples and nose bridge. They also integrate perfectly with Smith helmets. The result is an improved riding experience with an increased all-day comfort and an expanded field of view without altering the frame design or lens profile. Check them out at smithoptics.com. I just did the face scan. Mine are on the way. It was really easy. But again, check them out at smithoptics.com. So that was, I mean, the way you described Sean's run is amazing. I always think of these things like a show. And that's exactly how you described it. This up and down, you basically just plotted a, you know, I mean, yeah, a movie end to end, right? Yep. Take them up, slow them down, blow their mind. Exactly. I mean, it's all about, I mean, we are entertainers. We are performers. And, um, and these, these athletes are. And, uh, I mean, you're literally trying to reach in and, and you know, pluck the heartstrings of someone who's sitting down at the bottom, and the entire crowd as well, because there is a there's the score that you get, and there's the public opinion of you, and those are uh, two separate but linked things for sure. Well, that's interesting because so think on the the scoring, and then if you're framing up this kind of masterpiece from in the pipe, we're we're talking about but it can be applied anywhere, end-to-end. You framed up this masterpiece for your athlete with their help and their vision, and then you have an athlete that is just trying to get the score. They know the double scores this. They know the cab double scores this. On technicality. On technicality. And so do you, to me, it's very visible. Like I can see that without even knowing a person from the TV screen, I feel like I can capture 
that feeling? Is that a real thing? It is a real thing. I mean, there's definitely some riders, and, you know, not to take anything away from them, but that pursue technicality relentlessly and really maybe don't pay enough attention to the soul of the sport and the soul of what they're doing and, and how that comes out in what they're doing. I believe and always have believed that you can pursue both simultaneously. Why shouldn't you be able to do doubles and triples but do them with style and, you know, and orchestrate your run to, uh, to tell a story and to put out there exactly what you want to put out there. You know, half-pipe riding is just like making a video part or just like putting a video together where you might have an opener or an ender or, uh, you know, it's orchestrated. It's meant, to, um, it's meant to tell a story and to influence a person on an emotional, very, you know, basic level for them to sit there and be entertained and go, wow, that's awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think a, a half-pipe run should do the same thing. Yeah. And so... You know, and again, I don't think that um, the two are mutually exclusive. I think you can work on both ends at the same time, and and you should be, I think, because it's, I mean, no matter how technical you're getting, if it's just front side and cab all the way down the pipe, then it's kind of boring. Front side and cab all the way down. Yeah. I think this is fun getting into, uh, you're getting into what I like to call snowboard philosophy, which is a fun topic of, you know, when we really dedicate our lives to this thing, what, how much it means to us. I love talking about snowboarding in this way because simply put, a snowboarding is a vehicle for self-expression. It's, it, you strap in, how do I want to express myself today? How do I want to take my energy and emotion and put it on the board? Some people go huge, and that's amazing. Also, if somebody wants to express themselves through technicality, that's what they want to chase, do it. I think as long as you find who you are on your snowboard and are true to yourself in your lane, it's going to be perfect. I think when you chase the score and you chase things for the wrong reasons, that's where you lose the soul part of it to me. I don't know if that speaks to you at all. No, I agree 100%, Chris. Um, actually, I, I want to talk about uh, one of the other riders that I work with, Liam Gill. Yeah. Um, he's 20 years old. He's amazing. He went to the Beijing Olympics, and uh, we'll be going to the Olympics in 2026 together. In the meantime, we're working on um, ex- you know, uh, achieving what he wants to achieve. He's not looking at a criteria. Liam is probably one of the athletes, if not the most, that has the ability to visualize and then do things. He's like the, he just started hitting airbags, but he's got doubles and triples already. I mean, he didn't need those tools to achieve that. And he kind of didn't want it. Now we're getting into a zone where he needs them a little bit more because it gets pretty heavy out there. And uh, you can't be just, you know, chucking stuff and hoping for the best. I mean, you do a little bit sometimes, but um, but we're using them. But uh, he, in addition to have having one of the highest levels of being able to visualize and and then execute things. He has a very, very, very um, particular way that he wants to put things out there. He doesn't want to just follow the crowd. He doesn't want to do, he wants to, like I said, he wants to learn the tricks that other people are doing, but he wants to learn other things. He just landed a switchback dub 12 in Sasfe at camp. Second person. Um, what's up? I said, damn. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And it was great. And uh, so that, that's a hammer, too. And there's very few people that are out there doing it. I mean, basically, Scotty's the only one. But, uh, but he, 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 he won't do something 
that he doesn't think is going to be cool or isn't, doesn't, I mean, he, he has a very strict inner code that he follows about the soul of the sport, what he wants to put out there, and, uh, and he stays true to it. And I really respect and admire that. And, and that's the golden era of competitive snowboarding with Danny Cass, Danny Davis. The people that do that are the ones that we idolize because they're, they're really like soul boarders in a way. And it's fucking punk rock in a way too. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, Danny, remember, like he was the first person to do back-to-back 10s at the U.S. Open in, in the pipe. But we never knew what he was going to do when he dropped in. He'd do a different run every time. And I don't know if he was making it up as he went along or if he decided ahead of time, but like everybody was like, what's he going to do? And, uh, and then he'd do the run and he we'd be like, three or back one into the pipe yeah. too on his yep. drop in. Yep. Like just little shit like that's punk. It's, it's like that. Those little things are flavor. Like just a little bit. Just give me some flavor. Give me something to chew on. Exactly. You know, give me something to remember. That's what, exactly. that's what it's all about. I want to change gears too and talk about competitive snowboarding. You know, I, I do want to preface with the fact that like, you know, we, we are more in the video part world. I, I go to do tour. I go to contests. I've, I've, called broadcasted major competitive um, contests, but I'm not in the, I'm not in the core nucleus like you are. So forgive my ignorance in some of this, um, but I am passionate about it and I do love it and I do admire the tricks that everybody's doing. So I want to preface with that. However, when I look at the competitive snowboarding circuit per se, I feel as though we have some holes in, it's hurting our culture in this, I mean, one, the fact that it's run by FIS, which to me, I mean, I'm, I have no solutions. I'm not solution oriented. So I don't like to point out what's wrong with snowboarding. I'm not trying to do that. Um, I guess what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at is like, I, I'm a big fan of conventional sports of football and motocross. I watch those things. And there's like, there's a clear points chase in motocross, right? You, you have however many races, 16 or 18 races for the year for supercross. And it's like every race, there's a points and there's a title chase and it's like easy to follow. And, um, the broadcasts are, are easy to find and all these things. And I feel as though it's like almost this fragmented contest circuit. And a lot of the world cup stuff gets swept under the rug. Like for me, I I'm a diehard snowboard fan. I really watch like X games do tour Olympics, I'm not tuning into a lot of the World Cups because I, I don't even really know how to find them, honestly. Um, do, you, do you see any solutions on what we think we could do a better job of? Or what do you think about the current state of like a consumer consuming competitive snowboarding? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that it's kind of weak coverage right now. I mean, I mean you know, 20 years ago, there was tons of money in the sport. And I think there was more exposure as well. Um, the Burton U- the Burton U.S. Open and the Burton Opens in general enjoyed regular, you know, pr- better television coverage, and yeah. and it brought the sport to more people. Um, I don't think that FIS is doing a good job making those things available um, to the average consumer now. I mean, you can look at live coverage if you download whatever app and this and that and watch the FIS website, but you know, the average person isn't doing that. I mean, you kind of have to know something about it before you can even access those things. And, um, and that's, not, um, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's, uh, it should be something that, you know, you're flipping through the channel and it's like, whoa, let's watch this. This is cool. I mean, there's some snowboarders getting crazy in the half pipe or on the jumps or whatever. And um, we just don't have that. It's very hard to find, even for me. I mean, you know, I'm 
I'm kind of pre-computer age. I'm, I like to think I'm pretty computer savvy and iPhone savvy now, although I get schooled in that regard by my kids every now and then. Pretty, like I can't do something and I hand it to Liam and he's like, hands it back to me. He's like, all right. I'm like, thank you. But, uh, but so it's even hard for me to find that and I'm right in the middle of it. Um, it needs to be made more accessible. I think FIS uh, says it's money that's, uh, that's, that's missing. That's not. But where is it missing? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that what these kids are doing are, is unbelievable. And I think that it's something that anyone would think was cool. And if they if it was just on the channel that they flip through. So, yeah. um, you know, it's a it's a different world where it's not just flipping through the channels now and people are accessing things and live feeds and and blogs and, and stuff like that and podcasts. But uh but maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be a bigger part of that and a bigger part of what's just generally available to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that it would, uh, it would benefit the sport a lot. I mean, just exposure-wise. You know, I say all the time, it's funny, if you get 60th place and make it to the weekend in a golf tournament, I, we, we have Golf Channel on five, seven days a week, whatever. And um, if, you, if you get 60th place and make the cut, you win more money than you win for winning the X Games pipe. I mean, for risking your life. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so, you know, a person that's 150th on the PGA Tour is making, is a millionaire. And in our sport, even if you're one of the top three, it's still kind of hard to, to, you know, pay the bills out there. So, um, yeah, no question. I think that a better job needs to be done to bring this to the masses because I think it's rad and I think that people are emotionally stirred and, you know, the, the height of the sport is, um, is, uh, is not being glorified enough to me. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not. And that's on every angle. I mean, even like backcountry videos, urban videos, rails, it's like, you got to search that stuff out. I mean, it's not the type of thing that just, you know, you have to be an enthusiast of some sort to even know about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, we need to increase the exposure. And I we, think, yeah. I'm sorry. Go I, ahead. I mean, I'm just, I'm feeling listening to you talk that it's, you know, it's ultimately this day and age, the organization that's responsible for however something is broadcast. I mean, where else does it fall than, than who's putting it on? And so if if it's, I'm, and I don't mean to call anyone out because I'm, I'm like Chris and probably even more so super ignorant when it comes to how all of that stuff kind of breaks down and veins into all the snowboarders and coaches and lanes that it does. But it's ultimately their responsibility. Like they have some support. There's some sponsors that are kicking money to FIS and they have some media person that can send an email to all those sponsors and say, Hey, we're live streaming this on this YouTube channel. I mean, big this thing up, let's push this thing around or call the bomb hole and say, Hey, every time we run one of these, we want it live streamed here. Like it's not hard. Here's the thing. Seems. Here's the thing. I agree. Where I see, where I see is like, I am a fan of snowboarding, right? Like I want to follow I want to know what the runs that people are doing in slope style and half pipe. I want to tune in and kick my feet up on a Saturday night and be like, 
All right, we got pipe finals. 100%. And, and what I would, what I think we need to do and, you know, would love to be a part of doing is like, you know, what do I do? I play fantasy supercross, fantasy football. I pick my people. I get invested in this. I get invested in it. Oh, this is my, I know who, you know, I, I got random, you know, privateer dirt bikers that I know all about because I picked them in fantasy motocross, right? So it's like, I, I'm, I gamble. I gamble. I, spend, I lose all my money every year. I never win, but <laughs> but I'm invested. And so for me, with snowboarding, like if we could just take the storyline, put it in front of people, we'll you know help try to drive traffic and have people emotionally invested because they have a fantasy team and the points chase. Like, how do you get people emotionally invested into competitive snowboarding? That's the big question. And and I'm not. Um, I, I do also want to say like. Putting on an event is a humongous lift, and there's a million moving parts. The park builders sure. and the people behind the scenes and the judges, and it, and they make fucking shit money. And it's like, you know, it really is special that it even happens, but, you know, this is what I would like to see in the future. So I don't want to discredit what they're doing, but, like, I want to show where I think we have room for improvement. Agree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think resorts have a lot of responsibility in mm. in the in what we're talking about and what i mean is that um i mean the whole reason why someone gets up off of the couch so to speak and goes out and spends $750 on a snowboard and $250 on bindings and $250 on boots and then $1000 on a season pass and $700 on a clothing kit is because there are people hitting rails Backcountry, there, you know, these things are getting put out there. Uh, you know, um, half pipe runs. I mean, I guess what I mean is that the upper echelon of the sport, the people that are doing it on the raw edge and sending it and doing the new things, that's part of the story. Like resorts, uh, I think a lot of resorts, particularly some, are more interested in selling $20 hamburgers and think that that's the way to keep this sport going. But without the upper end, this sport doesn't exist because that's why people that, like I said, that snowboard 10 days a year, that's why they spend money on it. They rent a place is because Sean White and, you know, Jeremy Jones and different people are out there pushing it and sending it. And that upper thing, although they'll never, ever, ever, ever get close to that as far as a performance level, the fact that it exists makes it worthwhile for them to get in the car or get in the plane, fly somewhere, snowboard all day long, have some beers, party at night, and then get up and do it all over again. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that resorts bear some responsibility in glorifying that instead of just looking at the bottom line and going, oh, well, you know, uh, Sean's not making us any money. Um, Jeremy's not making us any money. Well, it's part of the story. It's part of what makes this whole thing tick. Absolutely. Solid. Absolutely. Well said. And to add to that, to think about, I think what's really important is getting people to the hill and snowboarding. But we talk about on the show, how do you go from a person that snowboards to a snowboarder? And that's when you start getting invested in the culture. You know who the players are. You know the characters. You know the brands. You figure out what you like, what you don't like. It's similar to you. You got Golf Channel on all the time. You know all the top golfers. You know when you're when the person you like's playing well, you're tuned in. You know, and and snowboarding, there is there's that barrier of the person that just goes snowboarding. How do you get them to become part of the culture? And the upper echelon of the sport is crucial for that to give them heroes and icons to look up to, like you said. Yeah, it's a culture. It's a community. It's it's something to be part of. 
you know, even though you're never going to do a 25-foot backside air, the fact that somebody can do it means something to you. And it, again, it makes you spend that money and, you know, be and, and get into it. Yeah. Well said. All right, bud, let's get into a guest question. This next guest question is from Louis Vito, and it's presented by Hippies. Now, Hippies are snacks that are made with chickpeas, and they are packed full of flavor. We keep them here at the office. We put them down on the daily. My favorite, I always talk about the nacho vibes. They're delicious, they taste good, and they're also good for you. A lot of healthy food. Feels like you're chewing on some tree bark. Uh, These taste good. I'd recommend the nacho vibes. One thing that's important about hippies is they're farmed with 10% of the water of most proteins. That means they use 90% less water from Mother Nature. So support sustainable farming with sustainable snacking and get yourself some hippies. Support companies that support snowboarding. You can find them at your local grocery store or hippies.com. If you use promo code BOMBHOLE, you'll get 20% off your orders at hippies.com. Here we go. Hey, bud. What up? It's Louie. Had a quick question for you. How has your coaching style changed over the years? You went from coaching 540s to pretty much coaching at every Olympic Games, and now you're coaching up to triples. So how has your style, how has your approach, and all of that really changed over the years? Yeah, Lou. Good to hear from you, man, and really psyched to see you everywhere we go. So uh, looking forward to the next time. I guess it'll be locks in January. But uh, I'm here in your hometown, or well, your your, your hometown now, um, your house in Salt Lake, and uh, I visited there. And um, But it's good to hear from you. And a great question. My style hasn't changed one bit. I mean, there's no difference getting somebody to go from a 360 to a 540 or a 540 to a 720 or a 720 to a 900 or to grab something in a different way, whether it's a three, a five, a double, a triple, it doesn't matter. Um, it's, it's a matter of, of uh, me-being confident. It's a matter of helping their confidence, and it's a matter of, of, uh, of choosing the right place and time. This is a really big deal to me as far as coaching or advising or managing or mentoring, whatever you want to call it. Um, I have kind of a loose green light system in my head all the time. I pride myself on athletes, snowboarders, and any athlete that I've ever worked with. Basically, I mean, we've had some injuries, but generally speaking, I think I'm pretty good, if not really good, at not hurting kids. And it's, I, I have a red light, green light system. Is the sun out? Is it 3.30 in the afternoon and 30 below? That's not the good time to send it, you know? Is the pipe icy? Is it the sunny wall? Listening to the sound of their voice, I'd mentioned this before, their body language. Are they nervous? Are they confident? Do they say, I want to do it? Um, you know, if, if there are enough green lights or all green lights, then it's go time. And then, you know, again, and as Lou, as you know, I'll push them. I mean, if it's go time, let's go because they're ready. And that's one thing, too, that, um, that I think that I'm really good at is that uh, when it's time to go, let's go. And athletes that hang with me know that it's time to go. Otherwise, I, why am I even there? So, uh, so we, then we pull the trigger and I'm pretty good at seeing when they're ready and when they're capable of doing something. So, um, again, whether it's a 360, a 540, a 720, whatever, a different grab, um, 
it's uh, it's all the same. And now that it's risen to the risen to the level of doubles and triples, really hasn't changed. I mean, you know, you don't try a double until you're ready to try a double, and you don't try a triple until you've done doubles and you're ready to go three times. So there is a logical progression. Um, it's loose, but uh, and um, you know, I'm kind of in control of it. Um, not 100%. I mean, it's them too. I remember one story. Uh, when I worked for New Zealand, um, Zoe sadowski Sinat, who's now you know a gold medalist, and she won a bronze in 2018 in Pyeongchang. I'm, I wasn't her direct coach, but I did work with her and her coaches, Mitch Brown and, uh, and Sean Thompson down in New Zealand. And I remember when she wanted to try her first double. And they called me on the radio, and they're like, Bud, Zoe wants to try a double would you come over here, please? And I was like, okay. Because, you know, it was scary for them. They had never been there. And it is scary as, as a coach or a mentor when someone wants to go for something like that. And, uh, and again, you know, so I got over there and I was like, all right, what's up? She's like, I want to try a double. And it was a double wildcat. And I was like, all right, how do you feel about it? She's like, I got it. I'm like, all right. I looked in their eyes and I'm like, I could see the belief. And I could see her body language. She was strong. She was ready. She had done single wildcats, and she, she was ready for the dub. And uh, the sun was out. Her coaches were there. All her friends were there. I was there. And they said, what do you think? I said, let her do it. So, and I said, before you go, one thing. She's like, what? And I was like, don't do a one and a half. If you're going to go double, go double. One, two, and then land. She's like, all right. Stomped at the first try, and then she, you know, had a lot of good results with that trick and went on from there. And now, I mean, she was amazing anyway, but uh, but she's grown up and, and continued to go. But that's kind of a story of the process, you know. It's uh, listen to them. Listen to what they're saying. Watch them. Look at them. Sun's out, warm, nice. Everything's perfect. The jump's good. It's not kinked or whack set up or anything like that. Let's do it, so... Amazing. Love that. Jake uh, Blavo this morning talking to him. He said that was the one thing he brought up to me too. He's like, Bud, is, he's really good at like when it's go time, it's go time. And he's like a motivational person there with you. And he's really good at like bringing the best out in people, which I thought was cool. And that, that story kind of speaks to that in, in some ways. Super interesting. Cool. Hey, Chris, you mind if I say something uh, on that note? Yeah. You know, I'm not teaching anybody anything. I don't teach them a thing. Maybe how to walk, maybe how to live a good life, you know, maybe, yeah, some of that stuff. But uh, as far as technical snowboarding, I'm just bringing out what's in there that maybe they couldn't bring out themselves without a little bit of help, somebody to help pull it out. But it's in there, and I know that. And uh, that's all I'm helping to, them to do is find their potential, really. You're Mr. Miyagi in them, is what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to do a documentary snowboard film, and you're going to be my voice from end to end. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be insane. Yeah, voiceover works <laughs> all day. Uh, let's change gears because we talked a lot about your coaching and all that, and I want to go back and talk about some Sean stuff. I have some notes about that, but you've lived a wild life <laughs> off the snowboard uh, in terms of rock climbing, um, all these kind of adventure things. Like I think uh, Jake was telling me like they went somewhere and on down day, you did a three day mountaineering trip by yourself in the woods and then came back and picked them up. Um, I would love to hear you elaborate on your life of adventure and what that looks like. Yeah. Well, um, I have lived a life of adventure and it's just, I mean, I, I, stuff I wanted to do, you know, I just find it hard to sit still and not do things. And I always wanted to, I mean, I watched, uh, 
I watched when I was a kid growing up, I would see these movies and documentaries about mountain climbers and things like that. And that always appealed to me. My parents uh, brought us, we, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia at the beach. And, um, and my parents always took us to the mountains two weeks a year. And, you know, from then I always wanted to, I had a boyhood dream to build a log cabin, to become, learn how to rock climb, to do whatever, you know, came my way. Um, and so I guess I just followed up on it, you know, and um, found ways to place myself in positions and in situations and in, you know, regions where I could do those things. And, uh, and then again, you know, it's, uh, it's really come full circle with my coaching or mentoring in that by putting myself out there and by laying my, I mean, life on the line many times, actually, um, it's helped develop the inner strength to be that mentor, to be that bottomless well of calm and confidence for my athletes. So, uh, so yeah, learned to rock climb, um, lived in Yosemite for seven summers, climbed El Cap, put up a bunch of new routes up in the high country of Yosemite, went on an r- expedition to row a boat, be the first to row a boat to Antarctica. From, let, I, I'm most interested in that one. Same. <laughs> uh, that yes, one please. sounds crazy. <laughs> Just give us a little more context on that because that one seems the most wild to me. Yeah. And twice I heard. <laughs> Two attempts. Yeah, that- well, I, I only went on one attempt. We didn't make it, but uh, and they kind of made it the second time, but it really changed my life. I was 27 years old or 26 when I got recruited. Um, this guy named Ned Gillette, he was a world traveler and expeditioner, and he did all kinds of firsts, um, circumnavigated Everest, Denali, ski mountaineering, made the first uh, ski mountaineering descent of Aconcagua, the highest mountain in the Andes, and, um, and many other things. Anyway, I heard through the grapevine that he was going to try to row a boat from Cape Horn to Antarctica, 605 miles across the Drake Passage, the roughest seas in the world. And, uh, and I was like, I want to do that. So, uh, <laughs> so I called him up. He lived in Stowe, Vermont, and I didn't even know, but a bartender told me, he's like, Ned lives in Stowe, you know? And I was like, really? And so he had advertised an outside magazine for people that wanted to join the expedition. And uh, he interviewed every single one of them and said no to every single one of them. But I just heard about it and I was like, whoa. So when my friend told me he lived in Stowe, I called, I found his phone number. It was in the phone book and I called him and he's like, all right. He's like, I don't usually do this, but I'll, you know, come on over and I'll meet with you. So I went to meet with him and I got to his house and I knocked on the door and he comes out and he's like, all right, nice to meet you. He's like, first thing, you're not coming on this expedition. And I was like, okay. And he's like, but I will offer you, he talked to me for a while and he said, I'll offer you to help me with logistics, you know, getting, getting this and helping with sponsorships and stuff like that. So I started doing work with him. And this went on for a few months. And then finally, one day he said, hey, take my car with the rowing skull on top of it and go practice in this lake, you know? And I was like, all right. So I did that. And that, we did that a few times. And then finally, one day he's like, all right, you're coming on the expedition. I was like, no way. He's like, yeah. So 27 years old, we flew down to, um, well, we went to Santiago. Then we f- flew to Punta Arenas, Chile on the Strait of Magellan, like almost down to Patagonia. And uh, we put the boat in the water. It was uh, 21 feet long, seven feet wide. It was a Swampscott Dory uh, hull design. So it was self-writing and self-bailing. It, like it could flip over and all the water would run out. And as long as you didn't fall out, you were okay. Um, it had a seven by seven foot square 
uh, sleeping compartment in the middle that was uh, semicircular, and it was three feet high in the tallest part, and then it was zero feet high on the edges. There were four of us, and it was pretty tight in there. But um, we, uh, we went 150 miles down the Strait of Magellan into Patagonia, and uh, we rode around for two months just getting in shape and getting ready. We had a, uh, a weather forecaster, Bob Rice. He was the guy who did like the around-the-world hot air balloon forecasting and stuff like that. And um, he was our weather guy, and he would send us a signal every day that was red, yellow, or green. Red means don't go. Yellow means get ready. And green means go. We were waiting for a very specific weather pattern when the winds normally howled across uh, west to east through the, uh, the Drake Passage and would just be death. I mean, it would kick us out into the South Atlantic and we'd be lost forever. We had to wait until the winds shifted to go um, out of the northwest, pushing us away from the coast and giving us a reasonable chance to get to Antarctica before we got blown out into the South Atlantic. Anyway, we never got the green. And we got antsy after two months, and one day we just uh, decided to go for it. And we had a yellow, so we went for it. We got hammered. I mean, as soon as we got away from the Cape, we hit like 40-foot waves. It was, I mean, we were lucky to be alive to get back. And, uh, and we made it back into the safety of the fjords, went back 150 miles up to the, uh, the Strait of Magellan to Punta Arenas, pulled the boat out of the water, and uh, that was our first attempt. And... Um, uh, I, I, during the next year, before our next attempt, I got my first snowboard sponsorship with Sims. And I was something I had wanted for a long time. And I was like, I'm going to choose snowboarding here. And then I'm not coming back. So he was like, I understand. And they went down. And on the second attempt, they hoisted a sail because, they, again, they didn't get the right weather pattern. But they hoisted a sail to get away from the coast. And then they pulled it down and rode the rest of the way. So they made it. I mean, there are some that say that they didn't actually, you know, row the entire way. So I wasn't there, I can't say. But they did do it, and it was a pretty badass uh, adventure for sure. We, uh, you know, rowing around the fjords, we, uh, we tore mussels from the, the, the rocks, and we cooked them in our pot for dinner every night. And we had, like, four lambs skinned hanging from the mast, and we'd go out there and hack off a piece and trim off the green stuff and then cook it in the pot. And, uh, and that's how we lived. It was pretty awesome, though. <laughs> that's crazy. Sounds what, awesome. What, what was the, like, life learning experience you took away from that? Well, I mean, just, you know, being able to kind of be willing to hang it out there. I mean, I had done that on my snowboard before, but this was a whole different situation with so many variables and really life-threatening variables that I had never come into contact with. And, uh, and I grew through that experience and seeing ne how Ned, he was just like, he just believed that he could live and that nothing was, you know, as long as he was smart, nothing was going to get him. And I learned that from him. And, uh, and it's, again, uh, it's, a, it's an inner strength that, that I adopted and that stuck with me from then on. And it's something that I've really been able to help transmit to my athletes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that if you're, you know, climbing up El Cap or rowing a boat across Antarctica or whatever, Cape, what's it called, Drake? Uh, the Drake Passage. The Drake Passage. You know, there, there's a common theme of just overcoming your fears and you're scared but you're calculated and you do it anyway. And that's the exact message that somebody goes through and they're learning a new trick, right? Yeah. 
I mean, and doing anything, hitting a rail, like uh, uh, launching over a gap. I mean, there's so many things. There's so many in what we do and in what you guys have done and in what so many kids in the past and today do is there comes a point where you just got to send it. You just got to go and you just got to, you know, you know what, if I can, this, this will work. I don't know exactly how, but if I fucking go for it, something good's going to happen. And it's a little scary, but or a lot scary, but, uh, there's that ingredient that will never go away. And, you know, just to take this full circle to what we began to speak about, I never want that ingredient to go away. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to become so sterile and so, um, and, and it's us that need to help maintain that because, you know, it could easily go that way. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk about one of my favorite places, Mammoth Mountain. We just went down there recently, put a beat down on the park, and it was fun. The rails slide good. The jumps are perfect. Uh, they also have a Grand Prix coming up January 31st to February 3rd. If you haven't seen one of these world-class events, it's incredible. If you watch Slope Style, Big Air, Half Pipe, it's some of the most incredible snowboarding to watch in person. So be sure to check out the Grand Prix if you're in the area. And then talking about the park, we were riding Main Park when I was there. It's incredible. Two minutes and I think 40 seconds back up to the top. You do a high-speed run. You got perfect jumps, good landing. You got great rails. And then you're right back on the lift. Your heart rate's up the whole time. It's good for an ADD snowboarder like myself. And the, the steel slides well. It's trustworthy. I was thinking about calling the steel manufacturer in Mammoth and just personally thanking them. Whoever the supplier is of that steel deserves a thank you because it's beautiful. And the park crew does a great job. They got 10 parks, 100 plus rails, 40 jumps at any time, a mini pipe, a mega pipe, countless transition features. They got South Park if you're looking for a good park that's not main, different aspect, fun, flowy park. Uh, you got Forest Trail, a little bit smaller. You might catch Todd Richards in there, busting a cab five. Uh, and then the mountain itself is incredible. They got shoots. They got all types of rowdy terrain if you want to go Big Mountain Jeremy Jones on them. If you're looking for a good snowboard destination to have a good time, be sure to check out Mammoth. I think this is a good Patreon question for uh, what we're talking about. It's from Cake Pound Crew. Uh, hey, bud, what characteristics do you look for in an upcoming rider with your coaching style, and how do you nurture it? I, I like that. Kind mm-hmm. of yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have a – I think it's an awesome answer. Some people think it's disappointing, but here it is. People ask me all the time what I'm looking for in a champion athlete. What are the ingredients that I'm looking for? And, and then how are we going to get there? And my answer is, I have no idea what I'm looking for, but I'll know it when I see it. And it's genius in a certain area of their riding. And if, if they have that genius, if they have that X factor, and again, I don't know what it's going to be. It might be the way that they stand. It might be their attitude. It might be the way that they talk. It might be the way that they look at the sport. It might be, you know, they're an amazing frontside spinner. They're an amazing cab spinner, you know, whatever. It's that one thing that I know if they have that, then that can be grown into other areas of their riding. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's it. I have no idea what I'm looking for, but I will know it when I see it. I love that answer. And I think this is a fun topic, too, to talk about, too, because what I see is you, you're a person that's like a feeler, right? You feel it. You, you connect with people on a level of like emotion and body language and feeling 
And I think that a lot of people are looking for a like cerebral answer, a very analytical minded answer. Well, if I have to do X, Y, Z, and I can put it in a graph sheet and I can, and it's like, it's intangible. It's, it's, it's what you're describing is something that is, is a feeling uh, almost more than something that you could be put on paper. But what, what do you think about the importance of drive? I feel like the, the motivation and drive and hunger have got to be in there as well. Yeah, yeah, you got to have it. I mean, it, you know, it, we're talking about a competitive situation, so you've got to have goals and aspirations. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. When I lived in Vermont and Stowe, Vermont, and coached Clancy and all those guys, we would regularly, we didn't even have a half pipe. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, but it was spotty. But I would take those kids out west and we would go ride the pipe at Copper or the pipe at Vale or the pipe at Mammoth. And, you know, even for two weeks. And they were from Vermont where it was 30 below zero and cloudy all the time. And we got out to Mammoth and it was sunny with a sick pipe. And they and they had the skills because they were like running gates, regular and switch, doing stuff in the woods. And they had that self-belief. And they were like, it's easy out here. So they would send it. And with that method and structure, we put five, six kids in a Grand Prix final. And Clancy won the first, he got third in the first Olympic qualifier for the, for the 1998 Olympics. And, uh, and then he was like, eh, I don't, I don't want to go to the Olympics. So he, uh, but he proved that he could be there, you know, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was the drive that I'm talking about. There's so many kids and, you know, I mean, there are kids that really take advantage of it, but by and large, there are a lot of kids in Copper and in Summit County or in Mammoth and stuff like that that sleep in till 11 noon and take it for granted that they have these amazing features out there. I mean, not like, I mean, one thing that was always impressive to me at Mammoth is riding up the chairlift at like 8.30 and seeing Lonnie Cowick sending sevens and nines, like first run. And, uh, and that's taking advantage of it. And Lonnie's a badass mm-hmm. on a lot of levels for sure and a very cool kid. But, uh, but yeah, it's that drive and he had that drive and my kids had that drive. They didn't have the jumps and the rails and the pipe like kids out west did, but they had the drive. And when they showed up, they were able to take advantage of it. Another thing that I'll say, another little story is, uh, is when I went to work for New Zealand, um, it was 2014, it was four years before the 2018 Olympics. And I showed up and we had a meeting, we had a lot of amazing athletes and uh, we had a meeting and I was like, well, what are the goals for this Olympics? And they were like, to get a medal. And I was like, all right, that's cool. I was like, well, um, what kind of a medal? And they're like, a medal. I was like, all right, that's cool. Sounds good. And I said, well, by the uh, question, what were our goals for the 2014 Olympics in, in Sochi? And they're like, to get a medal. I was like, what kind of a medal? And they're like, a medal. I was like, all right, how did that work out? And they're like, we got fourth. We almost got a medal. I was like, so let me get this straight. You're having the same goal going into 2018 as you had for 2014. What do you think is going to happen? We're going to get fourth again, you know. And they're like, oh, okay. So anyway, after a week of meetings, we came out of that with the goal of having eight medals. Now, we had eight riders or eight athletes going to the games, and we reasoned that on their best day, every single one of them was capable of getting a medal. Now, we didn't win eight medals, but we got two medals, and they were the first medals for New Zealand in 26 years. And it was because we adopted the belief. We took a chance. I mean, I went to bed that night. I was like, oh, my God. We just set the goal of eight medals. And everybody else did, too. But then when we talked to those kids, they were like, we're, like, we're going to get some medals. They're like, okay. 
But if we had been like, oh, we're going to get a medal, it's just too nebulous, you know, it's just too vague. I mean, we mm. hung our asses out and said, we're going to do this. And we won two medals, and it was Zoe and Nico, and um, it was pretty awesome. But, you know, that's drive comes from the top, kind of. You know, it's like if I have the drive and I have the belief, like I said before, I'm not standing out there to get 20th place. I mean, you know, you can do that on your own. We're going for it. We're going to lay it on the line. And so uh, when I adopt that attitude, they adopt that attitude very quickly. And then, then we're all moving in the same direction. Man, that's so good. Just believing in people. That's oftentimes as simple as that, right? My best teacher I was talking with my daughter the other night, and my best teachers in school, I remember them. There's two of them. They believed in me. It was just that, right? And they're the ones that I'll remember as good teachers and not any other ones. Yep. And a coach is the same. Friendship's the same. I just feel like there's there's such power in that mm-hmm. back to your original quote you know it's like you believe it that's where it changes that's right absolutely i mm. almost look at it like when i was listening to you talk it almost sounded like you're a ceo of a company right where you're like if you the company believes we're going in this direction and we can do it all the you know the employees will follow and it's like the, the leadership pillar you know and it all trickles down from the top you know it does. It does. You know, setting, it's, it's about setting goals. I mean, that's believing. And, you know, I tell the kids that I work with now and the kids that I've worked with all along is when you say you're going to do something, it might happen. But if you don't say you're going to do it, it's definitely not going to yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. So you got to, and you, and you don't just wish for like okay stuff. You wish for great stuff. You think about how amazing you could and how far you could go. And when you go to bed that night after you set goals and you tell them to somebody especially or write them down, you can't go to sleep at first because you're like, holy shit, how am I going to do that? I just said I was going to do it. But guess what? You're a different person now because last night you went to bed and you weren't lying awake wondering how you were going to do it. Mm -hmm. You've taken the first step to doing it Mm -hmm. and that's figuring out how you're going to do it. It's scary. Yeah. But – and you might fail, but – Nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know? Yeah. And these are life lessons that come from snowboarding but translate into all aspects of your life. When you think you can do something and it's on the edge of your skill level and then you do it and you land it and you're like, I thought I could do that. I did. You get yourself some confidence. You get yourself some self-belief. You know, you work through some failures. You've How great is that in snowboarding? You land on your head 100, not on your head, but you get destroyed 50 times and you finally land the trick. What a great lesson is that with snowboarding. You, the fear of failure goes out of the, out the window. The fear of failure holds everybody back in life. And then you, you finally make it that one time. And then, you know, the philosophy carries over into just professional life and, you know, regular life. It's so true. I, uh, I also, uh, I tell people, but uh, I realize when athletes are ready to do something before they even do mm-hmm. because I'm watching them and I'm paying attention to them and I'm listening to them as, as people and as athletes. And, you know, they're just, they just, usually they don't understand that they're ready and, until I point it out and then they're like, all right, you know, maybe. Yeah. And then it works out. And then again, they start to believe mm-hmm. and they're like, wow, this is powerful. And yeah. Cool. Sounds like half your job is just getting people out of their own way. 
For sure, for sure. <laughs> it's actually, uh, and I'll throw a, l- a little anecdote out. Uh, I had a camps business. I'm going to resurrect it after, you know, I, I closed it down, uh, BK Pro Camps, um, while I'm working with the Canadians because I want to give this everything I've gotten and succeed. And I really think that it deserves my full attention. But, um, but I had a series of eight cards made, and I would hand them out to every kid that came to one of my camps. One of them is believe and the quote that you said. Another one is keep your successes in your pocket. Visualize it, then do it, which is a quote from Barrett Christie. If you can visualize it in snowboarding, if you can visualize it, you can do it. And, uh, and quotes like that. And I hand those kids those cards out, and they hold on to them. There's a set of eight, and uh, they're kind of embossed so they don't deteriorate, and they throw them in their pack. But, uh, but they really make a difference for the kids because it's cheesy to say, believe in yourself. And so therefore, a lot of snowboard coaches don't say those kind of things because they don't want to be cheesy. But I don't care about being cheesy. I just want to have an effect on a kid's life. And, uh, and those cards are pretty awesome for them. So. Cool. I want a card. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. I love that. All right. I, I'm personally very curious about this next question I have here. So... You know, you don't get to see behind the veil of a lot of stuff. And you you ended up working with Sean White uh, there alongside for some great successes. Now, I'm I'm curious on a pretty particular level. Let's just say 48 hours before finals at one of the Olympics you got gold at. What is what is your routine? What are you doing those 48 hours before let's say Sean drops in? to an Olympic finals? Yep, great question. We did have a pretty specific and successful um, routine. Uh, it might not have started 48 hours before. I would hone in more on a 24 hours. But for, but for the 48 hours, I would say that we're, you know, making sure that he's feeling good physically, eating well, sleeping well, things like that as best we can. Sean's most successful Olympics were when he didn't sleep a wink the night before the Olympics. It was burning in his gut the whole night before. And uh, he'd wake up and say, I didn't sleep. I was just thinking about it. And then he'd go out there and crush and win the Olympic gold. So uh, those were the most successful, um, you know, uh, just build up. Another thing that was a very routine thing is before any final, and this is World Cup, X Games, Olympics, Sean would take a hot bath the night before and eat a steak dinner. And that was a routine. Always did. And that always worked out. Um, so those were our routines. I mean, you know, it's really nothing more than that. I mean, you know, he, we knew what he wanted to do run-wise and trick-wise. And just like anybody in a half-pipe or a slope style, you know, you don't go out and feel like you have to do your run in practice in order to prepare to perform it in the contest. You go out and do placeholders. So he'd go out and do like backside air, front seven, cab seven, front five, back five, front nine, um, just do placeholders, you know, and uh, the directions that he was going to spin in the contest. Maybe he'd go backside air, front dub, cab seven, and then next run he'd go backside air, front seven, cab dub, just kind of picking it apart. But, you know, you can, if you feel like you have to land your run in practice, and you don't, then where are you? Mm-hmm. So you kind of don't go for it, you know, and uh, and leave it until the, the moment. And I see a lot of kids out there making that mistake. They're like, I didn't land my run. And it 
it, it knocks you down a notch. It makes you doubt yourself going into the competition. So rather than go there, we just pick it apart a little bit and do placeholders. But uh, I'd say the biggest things are the, the hot bath and the steak dinner. Those were our routines. Was that the order? Would, would you do the steak first or the bath first? It's a good question. He would do the steak first and then the bath second. And the reason is because is he'd sit in that bathtub for like two hours okay. after the steak and we wouldn't have time for dinner. So um, if I, re- I, I think I remember that correctly. It was I steak heard, dinner first. I'm not sure what I'd do. I heard a story that uh, there was one Olympics where there was not a steak to be found before. The, is that it, folklore or is that true? I don't know. That, Ru- that, Russia? That could be true. It was Russia. Um, I mean, I did cook him a they knew good his dinner. Routine. And um, sabotage. They pulled all the steak from the shelves in all of Russia. Got to get rid of steaks yeah, in they, Russia. Yeah, and we had to drive an hour to go to the supermarket. You know, it was like an hour away in, in Adler. So um, I don't know. I mean, I thought I bought some steaks and cooked it there. Maybe that was one that, uh, that you know, we weren't able to make it happen. But, uh, but yeah, that— that one was unfortunately, you know, I mean, I mean, Sean is a super person um, and obviously the goat of half pipe riding for sure. But uh, he might have had a little too much on his plate that time. Um, band, slope style and pipe, um, just a lot for any one person. Skateboarding, yeah, like thinking about going to the Olympics on that. It was just... Um, it's unreal. Yeah, and just, you know, even for a superhuman rider like that, to, uh, to do all the, and the thing is, is like Sean didn't want to do slope and get 20th. He wanted to win slope. Sean didn't want to do pipe and he wanted to win it. He didn't want to have a band. He wanted to have a good band. And, you know, so it just adds up. Is your pipe coaching seems to be where your focus is most of the time. Is that by choice or just sort of the way it has evolved? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Jeremy. I, uh, you know, as far as my, I think I am most known as a pipe coach, but it just kind of happened. When I first started coaching, it was racing, and my kids all had freestyle boards. But back then, we didn't have jumps, we didn't have a pipe either. So they would coach. I would coach them in racing, and then after we were done training, they'd get out their freestyle boards, and I'd sit there and watch, and they just do whatever whatever they wanted, you know, and. Um, and I learned and about them and about um, the sport. I mean, I came from a freestyle background. and But back in the day, like at the U.S. Open, all the Euros would come over to um, Stratton, and I would go up there too. And we'd all do slalom, giant slalom, downhill, super G, moguls, and then eventually halfpipe in 88. That was the first halfpipe. So, uh, and then I got into halfpipe after that, but... Then when this coaching job came up, it was racing. So I coached racing and didn't really get involved with the freestyle. But um, then we started to have jumps. And then Clancy and those guys came along and they wanted to ride jumps and we had rails. So I was like, all right. I mean, at that point, I already realized that coaching wasn't about what I had done on a snowboard. It was about helping these kids to do what they wanted to do. And so, you know, so I started coaching slope. Then I coached halfpipe when that came along. Um, I coached uh, big air and slope for China. Um, I mean, I've coached skiers. I coached snowboarders. I mean, to Olympic medals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's about mentoring people and helping yeah, people. I like that. Yeah, I like the. I mean, you were asked what has changed in your coaching over the years, and immediately my mind was like nothing, and that was your answer because it it's consistent. Like the coaching is just drawing out the move from the from the athlete or 
whatever the move is, right? Yeah. Mental move, physical move, life move, business move, choreograph the run, whatever, and then put it down, you know. Exactly. Because it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, in 20 years, well, 34 years since I've been coaching, the sport's changed a lot, but people haven't changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like human nature, human psychology. It's all the same shit. Yeah. 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 Uh, All right. I got a fucking hilarious topic I just thought of (laughs) that I want to get into. Uh, So uh, how will I preface this? Okay. So we had... uh, Let me think about this. Okay. I got it. So in boxing, right? There's uh, a lot of times you hear boxers uh, do what some may call sperm retention before a big event, right? They're like, you want to hold it for as long as you can. So you go into this thing and you're fucking just, you know, charged up. Uh, Sage, we had Sage Kosberg on and he uh, openly talked that he did not practice the sperm retention philosophy (laughs) before the Olympics. Uh, It worked out great for him. Um, but you know, I would love to hear if you have a philosophy on that in terms of big events. I actually, um, I guess I have a philosophy. It's not with sperm retention. Um, because for one thing, I coach both male and female athletes, but it's about, it's about controlling, you know, uh, maximizing your, your potential and maximizing stepping up to the starting line in the best frame of body and mind to succeed. So whatever that means. I mean, if it's going, you know, and I mean, whatever, I don't, I'm not sure what Sage did, but um, if it's, if it's, if it's being like Sage, then if that works for you, then fine. And Sage certainly did kill it in 2014. Mm -hmm. I was there and he's rad, um, rad guy and cool kid. Um, but uh, I would say certainly that I, I can control a few things. And usually the athletes that I'm working with, I'm either staying with or near or something like that. So, you know, getting to bed at night, eating a good dinner the night before, eating a good breakfast the day of, um, talking about the next day. Um, because, you know, these are things we can't hide from. We got to mm-hmm. talk about them. And talking about them isn't to... Um, be nervous about them. Talking about them is just to get it out into the air. So we have conversations about things um, the day before, two days before, the night before, the morning of. But uh, again, just controlling the controllables. Um, Sleep, you know, uh, rest, diet, um, attitude, things like that. You know, I mean, if they're going to sneak out and do something like Sage, I mean, then I'm not, you know, I'm not... uh, micromanaging the situation. <laughs> <laughs> Fun subject. You didn't, I like it. You didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't dodge that, but that was some good, you had some good, uh, good, you, good audible there. Good, yeah. um, okay. Let's talk CB days. Now CB days is a wellness company crafting recovery products for athletes made with CBD, a compound from the hemp plant known for reducing inflammation. It was founded by snowboarders DCP and Frank Bourgeois in March of 2020. They developed a unique anti-inflammatory tropical called the OG Muscle Gel. This unique blend of 24 essential oils is designed to be fast absorbed by the skin and deliver the relief from CBD within minutes. This gel has built a reputation for speeding up your recovery time. The best feedback comes from post-surgery trauma, ligaments, muscular inflammation, and arthritis. Now, CBD's products are endorsed and used daily by many legends and upcoming riders. 
like Kurt Wastel, Bjorn Linus, Pat Fava, Ryan Paul, and many more. And even myself, too. I love it. Their mission is to help the snowboard community getting after it by offering 100% natural and effective recovery solutions. You can find CBDs at your local shops, such as Wave Rave, Darkside, Underground Snowboards, Snowshed New York, and other premium retailers who care about your health. If you have lingering injuries right now and love to try CBDs product, you can hop on cbdays.com and score a 30% discount by using code BOMBHOLE30 and start addressing your pain right now. Just head on over to cbdays.com and enter promo code BOMBHOLE30 to put your hands on the famous OG muscle gel, tinctures, and other awesome CBD recovery products. All right, I think it's time to, to hit a salt. What do you guys mm-hmm. think? Oh, oh. Oh, wow. Delicious. I think oh, the right uh, was heavier than the left. Wow. wow, sometimes they just hit you a little different. Sometimes they hit you different. <laughs> that one hit me a little different, yeah. All right, uh, you know what it's time for? Um, Mm. Silk, you got an idea? Jones? Yeah. Where do you think we're going here? Jones, what do you think? I think we're going video part. This is a segment we call Name That Video Part. Okay, what's your your confidence level here? Uh, Zero through ten, bud. (sighs) I don't know. I'm not feeling too confident. But, uh, again, I might get lucky. So if it's something... A little further back, I might have have better luck. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Here we go. Got it. Jake Blavelt, that. Oh, my God. It is Jake Blavelt. It is a forum video. It's forum oh, against them, but I'm going to count them. that. I count yep. that. That's I remember on the court. That was a two-song part. I remember that. And he did that wow. sick cork back seven off of that powder hip. It's the ender. That's one of the ender, exactly. And they shot it from below and then above, and it looked sick when he came shooting out. That was awesome. Can I tell you something, bud? Your core score just shot through the roof right now. (laughs) That was insanely (laughs) impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that one hit. That was good. Nice Nice work. I remember that whole part, man. The back seven, he does. I just rewatched it to pull that song. It's so sick. He lands in like a tuck and then shoots out in the powder field. And he's like in that tuck. I'm like, that has to be one of the best feelings you could ever get. Yeah. I mean, that that back seven, it's just a back seven, but it was one of the sickest Mm -hmm. shots ever to me. Um, Okay. And uh, you won this right here. Uh, You got a bomb hole prize bag. So you got... Nice. Uh, formal bag, hats. There's some run through wall smelling salts awesome. in there. You can give thank it to your you. kids. Uh, <laughs> don't forget that. And uh, thank you for thank you for participating and dominating. Name that video part. Uh, part two is for our listeners. This goes to uh, this isn't for you, Bud. This is for the people listening. If you know the song, you know the part. Comment on the photo of Bud on Instagram when the episode comes out. That's where we pick our winner. Here we go. Okay, thank you guys for playing. Name that video part. I know that one, but I won't say anything. Do you? Actually? I don't. (laughs) Wow, yes it is. Yep. Yep. Bud! Dang. I remember Bud, that one. Bud, you're banging us over the... I see. I'm I think that it. was... Uh, it we'll was, beep uh, it out. Say who you think it is. It's... Uh, well, I know the video. It's... um. 
Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You know, impressive. I'll tell you That's what, impressive. bud. I put you in a box as a as like a, a contest coach that had zero chance of getting me in that video part. I, I you know, I prejudged. I prejudged, and you uh, <laughs> you surprised me there. That was impressive. <laughs> well done, bud. Thanks, Jeremy. I got something I want to bring up. Hot Mike Vancouver. Oh. Can you provide some context of what yes. happened there? Yes. That was a special moment, um, which I'll never forget. And uh, I think some people remember it and some people don't. But, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of the culmination of a buildup. You know, Sean and I had been working together. And I always said about Sean that he could always do it when he needed to. But he would never do it when he didn't need to. He's a competitor. I mean, he always rose to the occasion. But when it was over and Sean was taking a victory lap, it was like some straight airs and some slashes. And uh, because the pressure was off and he didn't need to do it anymore. But I kind of wanted to change that, you know, for for his sake and for my sake as well. But I just didn't see why. So uh, why it couldn't be that way. So we went into the Vancouver Olympics. He had the double McTwist 12, which was new that year. And he landed it in some of the qualifiers. And on the first, on his first run, he didn't do it, and he and won, and he won the, the Olympics. And we had been talking leading up to that, and I was like, you know, we need to do this double test 12. I mean, show the world. Let's do this thing in the Olympics, and, you know, you're going to have the biggest stage in the world. And uh, he was like, yeah, you know, maybe, and kind of going along with it. But right at the moment at the top, he had won, and the pressure was off, and I kind of saw us being in the same situation as we had been in many times, where Sean won the competition on the first run and didn't need to take it to the next level on the second run. But I just really thought it was important for him and for us and for the sport for him to go ahead and do it. So, um, he, you know, I asked him at the top and I said, um, well, first of all, there was like a, a CIA eavesdropping mic about 100 feet away that I didn't even know about. It wasn't like I was mic'd up. I thought I was just speaking in confidence to my guy. And, uh, and so, um, they were recording over there and unbeknownst to me. And I said, well, what do you want to do? He's like, I don't know. You know, should I just straight line it? And I was like, no, no, you know, do some stuff. He's like, what do you think? Should I drop a double Mick? And I was like, yeah, drop a double, double Mick and, uh, you know, fucking drop a double Mick or something like that. And I was like, just make sure you stomp the shit out of it. And so I guess I said the F word twice. And <laughs> shit once. And uh, it was picked up on international television. Um, uh, Todd Richards was down in the booth uh, with the other guy. And, uh, and he was like, oh, excuse us, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, and I, there, I thought they were supposed to have a delay, like somebody that sits there with a button and goes, Chew. and when they hear a cuss word, they hit the delay. And, uh, but they didn't have that. So they just played it live to like, and the men's halfpipe was the most watched event at that Olympics in 2002. So it got broadcast out to about 20 million viewers, me you, dropping the F-bomb. And uh, I didn't even know because that's just the way I talk. I'm like, I haven't dropped it here. It's been, you know, I haven't really made an effort, but it just hasn't come out of my speech. But I never swear like in a negative way. I swear in an expressive way. So that's what I was doing there. I was like, yeah, stomp the shit out of it, you know. And he's like, all right. And then he later said, you know, that kind of pissed me off. And it made me like, all right, I'm going to fucking do it, you know. And so he did do it and he landed it. It wasn't the best one he ever did, but he got it done. And, um, and, you know, made history, won the contest twice, 
pulled out a new trick at the Olympics, and it was a big deal. So I walked to the bottom of the pipe, again, not even knowing that I had sworn because I just swear as part of my normal speech, and it, you know, I don't even think about it, and I didn't remember it. And I got down there, and Todd ran up to me, and he's like, you know, you just dropped the F-bomb twice and the S-bomb once on international television. And I was like, really? No way. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, all right. So I went to my boss, Jeremy Forrester, and I was like, look, do I need to issue an apology? Am I in trouble? And he's like, no, we already had a meeting with the, the IOC about it. He's like, you're good. He's like, you didn't know that the mic was there, and if they had put a mic in the huddle at a football game without telling the quarterback, they might hear some salty language. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly the type, same situation. He's like, you're fine. I was like, thank God. And uh, anyway, it was written about in uh, Yahoo and ESPN Magazine and many other outlets, and uh, hey, sorry. Dope. <laughs> Amazing. I, I heard some more folklore. I don't know if it was that same year or one of the years... I think it was practice before one of the Olympic finals. Sean got bodied. He got absolutely destroyed. And I think you and went and took a run with him to get his mind right. And then you got annihilated as well. Yeah, that was a big one. That was kind of trial by fire for our relationship. But it was good. Um, the 2006 Olympics in Torino, Italy. And uh, Sean was on, well, he was on the U.S. Olympic team. And um, we had teamed up to be a, coach-athlete uh, partnership the year before in 2005. Um, I knew that Sean was going to make the team. He knew he was going to make the team. So him, Jesse, me, and Mike Jankowski, who was my assistant at the time in New Zealand the year before, had dinner together. And I was like, look, I mean, you're going to make the team. So if I'm going to be coaching you for that, we might as well just start hooking up now. And he's like, I agree. So we, you know, we set the deal and, uh, and we started working together then. Um, um, and then fast forward to the moment that you're talking about. We were at 2006 Olympics, and Sean sketched on his last hit in his first qualifying run. And the way that the Olympic uh, qualification system worked then is that all the dudes and the women, everybody would take one run. They would take the top six scores and put them directly into finals. Then everybody else took a second run. And they took the top six scores and put them into the finals for a total final of 12. But the difference was they reversed the order for the second run. So Sean qualified seventh on his first run. That means he went last on his second run. He had two hours to wait before he had to take his second run. And, I mean, Sean's not the kind of guy that can hang out for two hours and, you know, stay mellow. So he ha kept his helmet and he kept his goggles on. He was just sitting there staring into the pipe and... I mean, I literally saw smoke coming out of his ears, you know, and he was burning up inside, and I knew I had to do something about it. So I said, hey, why don't you go down to the food tent and get some soup? And he's like, no, I'm not eating until this is over. I was like, all right. So I let, let it go for about 10 minutes, and then I went over again, and I said, Sean, let's go take some runs, man. Get your board and let's go take some runs. He's like, nope, I'm staying here until it's over. I was like, all right. So I let it go for another 10 minutes, and then I went over and I go, grab your board, let's go take some runs. He's like, okay. So we went and we took like probably six or seven runs and the ski area was closed because it was the Olympics and we were the only ones that could ride the lifts. But we would go down to the bottom of the pipe and then go through like a gauntlet of like 10,000 people. And we had like a little fenced off area, but everybody was high-fiving them and trying to as we went by. And then we'd get to the chairlift, ride up, and we took six or seven runs together. And at one point on one of the runs, I mean, it was 
obviously a tense situation. I mean, I knew I had the guy that was going to win the Olympics. We just had to get him into the final. And um, sometimes the qualifiers are harder than the finals themselves because you, you're kind of like, it's like a chess game. You're like, what, how much do I do? I don't throw everything at him. I'm, I just do a qualifying run. So uh, anyway, he had sketched and he was in seventh place anyway. So at one point riding up the lift, I mean, he took his goggles off and looked right at me and he's like, bud, am I good? And I was like, I mean, here's Sean White looking at me with a pretty intense look and going, am I good? And I was like, you're fine. You got this. It ain't going to happen again. He's like, all right. So again, you know, it's about being a coach that's able to be calm and stay calm and, and be that rock for somebody. So, um, and I did my best. I mean, it was a serious situation. I had to, had to do it. And, um, anyway, on our last run, it was, there was about 20, 25 minutes before he dropped on our last run, he goes down and hits this. It was a really crappy jump and it was super short and it had a super steep landing and it was pretty icy because it was cold out. And I mean, of course he's Sean White. So he hits the jump and laces it. And I'm like, Oh, that looks like fun. So I hit it and I absolutely ate shit at the bottom of it and it hurt. And I was like, Oh man. And my goggles flew off and stuff like that. And I was just collecting myself and getting up. And then I look down the hill and I see Sean hiking back up to get me. And he hikes up. I mean, he's in the Olympics getting ready to take his second qualifying run and his coach eats shit and needs rescuing. And he came up and did it, you know. So he hiked up and I was like, I'm okay. He's like, damn, dude. So anyway, we rode down to the top of the pipe. And I think all of that, especially the accident at the end, kind of cleared his mind and shook all the negative energy out and just like, changed the subject. It wasn't like about taking this qualifying run. It was about that his coach had just eaten shit and, and he kind of came up and helped me out. And we went down to the pipe, handed his board to the wax tech to buff out and get fast for his final run. And then he dropped in and won the qualifier. Like not only was in the top six for the second run, but got the highest score of the qualifier, making it into the finals. And then, you know, 45 minutes later, he won his first gold medal. And I knew he would do that because you know, again, when it's game on, it's game on. Qualifiers kind of game on, you know. So, uh, but yeah, that was a that was a good story. I mean, it hurt a little bit, but it, <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> there was some there was some folklore that the bail was maybe intentional to take Sean's mind off of the event. Is there any truth to that? I'm going to say no. Um, I don't eat shit on purpose <laughs> ever. And again, that one hurt. So. Uh, <laughs> But it just kind of worked out, and I think that most of the tone had been set in the lift rides okay. before that anyway. And then that one was the icing on the cake. Um, looking back, probably fortuitous, but not on purpose for sure. That would, I mean, imagine if that you're like, okay, i got to change his mindset. Here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right, one. I'm going to take this one to the side here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Heels up. Interesting. Now, ta- <laughs> yeah. now, talking about Sean, I know you probably have a million stories, and there's so many things. That, there's endless things to talk about. Is there anything that comes to mind when, you know, in all of your years with Sha- working with Sean that's like a particular story that stands out above the rest? Yeah, and I think, uh, I think you guys talked about it on his podcast, which I watched and really enjoyed. Um, so many athletes that I've coached over the years will be like, okay, I'm trying to learn this 7, this 9, this 10, this 12, whatever. And, uh, and then the situation is right. The sun's out. It's, they're feeling good. Everything's pointing in that direction, and we go for it. And they learn the trick, and they do it. And it's like, yeah. And then they're like, all right, let's get out of here. And I'm like, what? I mean, you just did your first frontside 1080. Let's do it again. And they're like, no, man. You know. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, 
I can accept that sometimes. But when Sean did the first Double Twist 12, which is Park City, and uh, that's, you know, he remembered that. I mean, he did like 12 or 13 more and didn't land them all. I mean, you know, he kept going at it. And here was the best half-pipe rider in the world doing the most difficult trick in the world. A lot of times kids think they got away with it. They're like, I did one. Let's get out of here. But he was like, I want to make this second nature. And he kept going for it and going for it and going for it. And he almost hit the coping. He did hit the coping a few times. But he probably landed eight or nine out of the next 12 or 13 of them. And I actually made a video edit out of it. And it's like how to learn a new trick. It's like you do it once. It's like he raised his hands and then he went back up and did it again, back up and did it again, back up and did it again. When we left at the end of that day, he had that thing on lock. And that was an impressive story and showed me a lot about him and the way he approaches the sport. Cool. Wow. And that's, I mean, we've talked about it, but that, that axis is the most dangerous too. There's, it's just so blind and double backside. blind. Yeah. yeah double mm-hmm. blind. Yeah. yeah. Wild. Um, I heard a story from somebody, I forget who I was talking to yesterday, uh, maybe Bridges. Bridges was talking to you, talking, and he said that he saw you out snowboarding one day, and you had a bunch of different snowboards, and you used to like text, uh, test all these different waxes before the Olympics. Yes, yes, yeah. Actually, we uh, up at uh, Snoqualmie, I think it was um, before the 2010 Olympics. You know, I mean, be, going fast on a half pipe in a half pipe is airtime. I mean, there isn't just there's a one to one relationship with that. The faster you go, the bigger you're going to go. The bigger you go the better you do. Anything done at any at six feet is better done at eight feet. Anything done at eight feet is better at 10, better at 12, better at 18. So the faster you can go, the better. So for half-pipe riders, wax is just as important as it is for Bodie Miller or a World Cup racer, you know? It's like hundreds of a second. It's not timed, but it's those hundreds of a second transfer into airtime above the lip. So it's really important to us. Um, we went up and spent about five days at Snoqualmie, which had a very similar, like, uh, kind of a wet, like, uh, you know, like a close to the ocean um, snow consistency that we were going to encounter in Vancouver or Cyprus, which is where the halfpipe event was. And, you know, I mean, going to the Olympics and any resort named Cyprus was like a little bit of a red flag for me. I was like, all right. And as it turns out, they just barely ended up pulling the yeah, pipe that off. Yeah, that was a bad half pipe. Yeah, they, uh, they stacked snow bale, uh, hay bales up, and they flew glacier snow in from miles away and uh, packed it. And, I mean, it was gnarly on the first night of practice, and that's actually another story I'd like to tell. But uh, they got it together after that, and for the finals, the qualifiers and the finals, the pipe was great, and it worked out really well. But... Um, we went up to Snoqualmie, and it was the border crossers and me, border cross coaches and me, and we were wax testing. So the way you wax test is you set up like a timing, like a wand, like for a race, and then a beam at the bottom. And you put a certain wax on the board, and then the person who's testing sits there and then just lets go. It doesn't pull or anything like that, just lets go. And then they drift through the wand and then through the beam at the bottom and you get a time for it. And then you try some other wax and you do the same thing. And you try some other wax and you do the same thing. And the thing about waxing, especially rub-on waxes, which are called overlays, is that it, 
it's not a science. It's kind of voodoo. I mean, you got to test stuff. You can't just go, oh, this is the temperature range of this one. This is the one we're going to use. That's cool. And that can kind of give you clues. But in the end, you got to test them because there's voodoo involved. I mean, there really is. And, um, and then you figure out which one is the one that's going to work. And, um, and then when you go to the Olympics, you got the upper hand. You got the advantage. You've got the edge. So uh, that's why we're doing it. Amazing. And what was the story you're going to tell about the Vancouver Halfpipe? Vancouver Halfpipe. And this is a very inspirational story. Um, and I made a video of this too. So we show up for the first night of practice and all the best riders are there. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Peitu, Shungon, like everybody. And, um, and the pipe fell apart like quick because it, it, it was unconsolidated. They had just built it with this packed on snow. So holes in the wall like this big and like a foot and a half deep opened up and the flat bottom had moguls like three feet high in it. And Sean was like, well, this sucks, but if this is the way it's going to be for the Olympics, I came here to win the gold and I'm going to win the gold in this pipe. So he charged. One by one, all the be best riders in the world gave up. And in the video that I have and my little edit, you see the crowd at the bottom of the pipe of the best riders in the world giving up, growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the end of the content, by the end of the practice, there were like 50 riders standing at the bottom, just like, fuck it, man, we can't do this. This, this pipe is unrideable. Meanwhile, Sean was dropping in and doing backside air, front dub 10, cab dub 10, sky hook, double twist 12, over and over. And they were all just sitting there like, how can he do it? his knees were going bah, 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 across the flat bottom. I mean, it was unbelievable. I side-slipped down through the pipe at the end of the practice and fell twice. That's how gnarly it was. And I, I'm, I'm snowboarding, you know. I mean, it wasn't like I'm a beginner. But uh, that's how gnarly it was. But he was charging, carrying speed in the pipe. And in a, in a large way, he kind of won the Olympics that night. He demoralized the competition. They were all like, how can he freaking do that? Now, the pipe got better for the quals and finals. But, he, but the damage was done. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's so dope. That's yeah. cool. It was and sick. And it's, it's interesting, too. You know, it's like you have an expectation, and when you're not meeting that expectation, you get disappointed. But everybody is competing against the same, on the same thing. They're all right. Whether it sucks or not, you still, it still made the best person win. Yeah. If you let it get into your head, it will. Yeah. Totally. Wow. I like that. That's an interesting topic, too, about IOC stuff. You know, um, you think about IOC, it seems like oftentimes there's not always people that have snowboarding's best interests behind it. Uh, one example might be the women's slope style event when there's like 80 mile an hour winds and they sent the women down the course and they all just got annihilated. Uh, maybe Vancouver could be an example of that. Um, I mean, you're a little bit more on the inside of it. What, what's your thoughts on how the IOC runs those events sometimes? Yeah, great question. You know, um, it's, it's always easy to, to want more and to want more attention. One thing that I will say about the Olympics that's cool is that the Olympics aren't all about snowboarding, and that's kind of fresh to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want everything that we want. And I want it to be good always because I want to see the athletes showcased in, a, in an environment on features that promote success and allow them to do their thing to the best of their abilities. I want that. Having said that, the fact that the Olympics aren't all about snowboarding is cool because other athletes and sports are rad too. And so it's a little bit of a shift in that way. I mean, when we're at a World Cup, it's more about snowboarding because it's a snowboarding event. 
at the Olympics, they do have a lot of mouths to feed. And, um, and I think that it's good for, um, in, in certain ways, I think that it's good for us not to always be the center of attention. Um, again, you know, when I'm inside of it, all I think about is the snowboarders. I'm not thinking about the ice skaters or whatever like that. But it's cool that they get equal respect once every four years, you know. Um, so that's rad. Um, having said that, uh, the half pipe at the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City was the best half pipe of all time for the Olympics. In 98 in Nagano, it wasn't good. Um, in 2006, it was okay. 2010, they barely pulled it off. So we kind of had these, you know, the one in 2002 in Salt Lake. I mean, the sun was out. Frank had cut the pipe. It was perfect. It was a freaking awesome day. Um, and that one really brought out the best in everybody. I mean, Ross's run, Danny's run, JJ's run, I mean, Heike, Tommy Shashin was right up there. Um, but then we went through a low period. I mean, and some of it was due to um, lack of money applied to the subject by FIS for sure, and uh, or the IOC. And some of it was due to adverse weather conditions, which, again, money can usually take care of that too. I mean, you know, mm. I, I'm not saying that money's everything, but you throw enough money at something and you can usually fix it. So I do, you know, I was disappointed in the resources that were available to deal with those situations. Um, fast forward to 2018, Ali Zahetner from uh, Caprun cut the pipe, built and cut the pipe in Pyeongchang, and that was probably the best half pipe in the Olympics of all time. So I feel like we're getting there. Ali cut the pipe in Beijing in 2022 as well. Same deal. Um, we've got the right guy who's putting in the time. It seemed that the resources were there. And so I'm happy about that. But, you know, things like the women's slope style in Pyeongchang in 2018 shouldn't have run the event. You know, I mean, it's like, come on. And um, not only was it a dangerous, a potentially dangerous situation, but it might not have brought out the best in the best. It, it turns out, I mean, I think that the winner, um, I think uh, Jamie won Jamie that. Won, yeah. And uh, and Jamie certainly was the winner. And, uh, and she would have been in any situation, so good for her. But it handed those women challenges that I don't think that they should have had to face. You know, I, again, the Olympics is supposed to be, to me and to all of us, I think, an event that allows the best athletes in the world to showcase the sport at the highest levels, on the best features, in the best situations imaginable. Dealing with adversity like Sean did in 2010 at the pipe, th those are inspirational stories as well, but why should Sean have had to deal with that? You know, I, I tell a story, and, um, and I'm going to tell it right now. It cost them $20 million to build the, um, the bobsled track in Vancouver. Now that's for bobsled, two-man, four-man, women, luge, and uh, what's the one where you go head first? Skeleton. Skeleton, yeah. yeah. Um, it cost $20 million to build that. Now now it's, it's there, and it becomes a World Cup venue and a training venue and, like, you know, fosters the sport. We're not spending $20 million to build the halfpipe or the slopestyle course. Why not? I mean, a lot more people snowboard than two-man bobsled. I mean, I've never done it, and uh, I probably never will. <laughs> and, uh, and then furthermore, a dude came out of it. I mean, you know, tragically, a Russian athlete came out of it and, and died. So in my opinion, 
if you spend $20 million to build a bobsled course, number one, you shouldn't be able to come out of it. You should be able to roll a bowling ball down that thing at the top and it comes shooting out the bottom. And second of all, you know, the half pipe cost a half a million dollars to build and then it melts away and it's gone and there's nothing remaining. I mean, um, I'd like to see that kind of commitment on the, you know, I, in my opinion, every Olympics that hosts a half pipe, which is every Winter Olympics, that should be left as something that remains in perpetuity so that it's both a training and an attraction to that resort and a future World Cup and maybe even Olympic site and stuff like that. Um, I mean, why not, you know? Makes sense to me. Absolutely. This is a this is a great segue into a common topic that comes up uh, with, you know, along with your evolution, with your evolution, with everybody that snowboarded evolution with half pipe, uh, would be the accessibility in the sense that when you grew up and you rode a five, eight, ten foot half pipe, whatever it was, I grew up, you know, sixteens or little ditches or eighteens or whatever, you know, you look at that half pipe and you anybody can ride it. Like you're a beginner and you, you were like, Oh, I want to go down the half pipe. I want to hike the pipe. I want to get it part of it. But I think the 22 foot has the kind of the vert ramp effect in skating, like the vert, you know, vert killed skating or whatever. You've heard those analogies. I would like to hear your take on the super pipe. Is it good for snowboarding? Is it bad? How do we get more people into riding half pipe? Cause it does seem like a bit of a niche sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good subject, and, you know, I, I have differing opinions and kind of go back and forth. One thing I will say is that um, from a safety perspective, I think that everyone is better off riding a 22-footer instead of, like, starting in a 13-footer or graduating to an 18-footer and going to a 22. I mean, the beautiful thing about halfpipe is that if you're not good at it, you can't really get in, you, you can't do anything. You can't like hurt yourself that much because you have to be able to be good enough in order to get out of the pipe. And then you're exposing yourself to danger. But by the time you do that, you're good enough to do it. So it kind of takes care of itself. It's, I mean, a jump, anybody can come down and just go, wow, I want to hit that jump. And even though it's day two on a snowboard, they can send it and freaking, you know, ruin themselves. You can't do that in a half pipe. You, you, uh, by the time you get good enough, you're good enough. So, uh, and then the trannies on a 22 footer are so wide and fat that, um, you know, it reduces, um, I, I believe that it just provides more transition to catch. Even if you pop off the wall, you're still going to catch some tranny, generally speaking. And so, uh, so I believe that they're safer even for young kids. And, um, and yeah, like that. The big thing about 22 footers is the amount, the investment the investment in snowmaking in particular. I mean, they have to do some dirt work. That's 18 foot or whatever. And they have to own a machine. The, machi the machine to cut a 22 footer isn't um, appreciable, uh, you know, isn't significantly more expensive than that to cut an 18 footer. So that's, I mean, it costs another $20,000, but whatever. And, um, but yeah, the investment in snowmaking and power and water and things like that. because. Diesel. Resort, yeah, exactly. Diesel and cat hours and things like that. So, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, there are some questions to be answered there for sure. And thank thankfully, you know, Mammoth and Woodward and Copper and some other resorts and Calgary, COP, they see the value in making that investment. It is an Olympic sport, so it has legs and it leads somewhere. And I love, you know, I love the, the half pipe. I, uh, 
you know, a lot of people say, hey, we should proliferate 13-footers more because a lot of people have cutters sitting in their yard and they can use the 13-footer. I agree. We should have more of those. And then, you know, it'd be great if we had 13-footers, 18-footers. And then if you're one of those resorts like Mammoth, like Copper, like COP, like Woodward Copper, or Woodward uh, uh, Park City, and you have a 22, then, then there's kind of a you know, there's a map of where these things are and you can position yourself. And if you're like, I want to become a half bike rider and I need to ride a 22, well, you move to copper or you move to mammoth or whatever. But, um, but I do think that there should be more of the 13 and 18 footers just to get people into it. Um, one thing about North star, I worked at North star in between, well, for a couple of years and, um, before I took the job with Canada and, and it was awesome there. And one thing that's really cool about North Star is, first of all, they have like the longest park run that I know of in the United States. I mean, that pinball, it's like, and Mike Chapani and his crew, they do a great job. And um, there's jumps, you know, it's kind of a progression line. There's little ones at the top. There's rails everywhere. Then there's some medium ones. And then there's rails everywhere. And then there's some bigger jumps at the bottom. But the whole trail leads through the half pipe at the bottom. So every kid that comes down, they're not like, Ah, screw half pipe. I don't ride half pipe. They ride the half pipe because they hit the jumps, they hit the rails, and they're they're not going to ride around the half pipe. They just go through it. So they learn how to ride half pipe, and they develop a love for transition, which, I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, from skating and surfing, I mean, it's all about transition, and that's the genesis of the half pipe. So, um, I mean, I love it, man. And, you know, it's uh, when I was standing at the top of the 22-footer at – at copper the other day. And I was just talking to, to another coach and he's like, man, you know, I mean, look at us. I mean, how far have we come to be standing here? And, you know, it's, uh, it all came from the wave skating. It, it, it all came from surfing. Then they started skating in the street and to, to practice their skills in the off season or in, you know, when they weren't surfing, then they're like, well, we could make waves out of, they went to pools and they hit pools. Then they're like, we can make our own waves. And they started building ramps. And then it went from there and then eventually into snow and the half pipe. And, but it's all the same thing. It all started with the wave. We're all seeking the wave. So I never want to see half pipe go away because not only is it all about the wave and it goes back to the roots of this sport and skating and surfing, but, um, but it's cool, man. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, have you ever seen the movie uh, Remember the Titans? Yeah, Denzel Washington is standing on the football field at night, and he's like, this is my sanctuary. Here, everything is perfect. Well, that's how I feel when I'm standing at the top of a <laughs> I love it. It's a football field. You could see the whole run, and you see everything. It's pretty cool. Especially uh, when it's perfect. Especially when it's perfect. And they are, man, God. The Gorgeous. Zog and the grooming. I mean, Frank and Ollie and Jeremy Carpenter. Um, and the guy, Adam, who cuts it at COP, I mean, there's some real masters out there. It's come yeah. a long way. It's impressive. I've sat with Benny cutting the pipe at Woody's and yep. man, just sitting in there and watching him just like the tiniest adjustments on his hand and how still he is. And it's violent in that thing, that, that <laughs> auger going yeah. and just to hold that line and keep that balance and that patience is, was very impressive. So and I mean, you can't cut a pipe good fast. No, you can't. You can't. You, you got to go slow, and you try to. Yep. And if they give you a timeline, something's going to go wrong. If something they say you need wrong. to be out of there in three hours, 
you're going to rush it and you're going to do it. Then you're getting a three-hour pipe. That's right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than a bad 22-footer. It's like a loaded gun, man. You know? Straight up. Seems like the hardest part is the floor, getting the, the flat bottom Matching smooth. it. That's like when you get in a good half pipe with like no kink at the bottom, you're like, whew. Yeah, the blend from the, bo- mm-hmm. from the transitions to the flat bottom and a little bit of dish in the flat bottom. So it's kind of a continuous arc instead of a tranny flat tranny. And uh, but there's people that are really good at it. It's pretty amazing. You know, it's funny too when you, uh, even I. I mean, having done this for so long and coached a lot of pipe, when I roll up to the top of a pipe, I'm like, it looks good. And then the best riders in the world drop in, and they're not going that big. And that you know what that means? It ain't that good. Yeah. But when you roll, it's it always looks U-shaped. So you're like, you know, you don't know. But then when you see them drop in, and all of a sudden people are going 15, 18, 20 foot out, you're like, it's working. Mm. Those competition pipes, shout out to all the, the cutters because it's unbelievable. Like dropped into Dew Tour last year and I remember as a kid going to US Open when I was an eighteen and I was a I did USASA, but like you drop into that like competition pipe and it's the pitch is perfect, it's fast, it's steep, it's easy to carry your speed. You're kinda like I'm a golden god today, you know? Like yeah. they, they it, it boosts your self esteem in a good pipe because it's easy to to do your tricks. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, there's riders that, I mean, like if, if the pipe, if they're, if we're at a training camp and the pipe's not that good, I know that I've heard other coaches say, Hey man, you know, you need to learn how to ride a shitty pipe too. Well, maybe you do, maybe not because at a comp pipe, it's going to be good Mm -hmm. and you can be, you know, you can be more than the sum of who you were, you know, you can, you can take that next step or two or three just because the pipe is so good. So there's an argument. I mean, I used to see certain riders from certain nations sending it in a crappy pipe with the wind blowing and stuff like that and, you know, kind of taking themselves out sometimes. And I guess that's one approach. But the other approach is to go – Sean had a saying. He was always like, bud, it only, it only takes one day. And what he meant is day one, not feeling it. Day two, there's a kink. Day three – low visibility, day four, it's perfect. And then he does everything that he was supposed to do on the first three days in one day. So I like that. Yeah. All right. We're going to get into hot takes, staple the show. We always uh, go through kind of short answers. You don't need to be too long-winded. You can elaborate if needed to, but you don't need to go into full elaboration, like 10-minute story on anything here. Uh, Okay. First question, uh, goat of snowboarding, both male and female, who you got? These are hard questions. Um, I mean, Terry, you know, on the male side, it's like kind of, he's got the most green lights for me, for sure. And, you know, really had a massive effect, particularly on transition riding, but, you know, backcountry and stuff like that too, for sure. Um, Female... Jamie. Jamie Anderson. Yep. Like it. Uh, would you consider snowboarding an art form or a sport? It's a mix. You know, snowboarding is a sport, but an artistic side. That's the cool thing about snowboarding is it's not a time, you know, and there are timed events in snowboarding, but snowboarding itself is a mixture of athleticism and self-expression, putting out there what you want people to see and uh, shaping your effect on them. And uh, it is art. Uh, 
but it's also sport. Rails, powder, or half pipe? Um, powder. That's everyone always that's something gets we always wrong. share. Yep, something we always share. <laughs> we all share. No matter who you are, if you hit rails, you ride powder. If you ride half pipe, you ride powder. If you race, you ride powder. Everybody rides powder. You do have a point there. Uh, who's, who's got your favorite style ever on a snowboard? Uh, Jake Blavelt. Oof, Great epic answer. answer. Uh, favorite method? Who's got your favorite method? Jamie Lynn. Uh, favorite Solid. snowboard video ever made? Two, actually. And I have thought about this because I saw you asking the question on Sean's episode. One that nobody probably knows of, but if you're listening to this, get out there and fi find it. It's called This Is Snowboarding, and it's by Sims. It's one of the first snowboarding videos of all time, and it's epic. It, uh, it's basically Tom Sims spends a week in, in uh, Jackson Hole filming with like a red jacket on and stuff like that, and they piece it all in together into like this 20-minute run, and it's freaking awesome. So This Is Snowboarding, and then my second... Favorite is uh, um, the grenade video, uh, Full Metal Edges. <sighs> Damn. Damn. That's a good Credibility's one. going yeah. through the roof with that answer. Great answer. Um, favorite snowboard, like, board graphic ever? Favorite board graphic? Um, I think Shannon Dunn's uh, uh, porpoise uh, on it, yeah. That one was one of my favorites. Nice choice. Was that a Burton? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, and then uh, pants over the high back or under the high back? How do you rock them? Under the high back. Okay. If you go heli boarding with three people in the helicopter, good times, just riding pow, wherever you want, who are you bringing with you? Well, Jake Blavelt. Um, Jake. Carpenter and Tom Sims. Dope ass heli. Dude, Blavelt is going to trip to hear that. Yep. That's a lineup. It's BN. Okay, uh, any sponsor in the world doesn't have to be snowboarding related, really anything. What's your dream sponsor? Mm -hmm. Louis Vuitton. <laughs> that way I can get free stuff for my wife. Heck yeah. That's dope. Good looking out. Great answer. Wow. Amazing. Okay, last question. Hot takes. Worst trend in snowboarding. What do you got? Uh, worst trend in snowboarding is hearing anybody say I'm over it. That one gets me every time. Mm -hmm. How can you be over anything when you're on a snowboard? You're having fun. You should be. Damn. Good well, answer. More wise knowledge. I know. i got to change the things I say now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like uh, me basically after every time I unstrap after the rail and hike back up. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that insight. Um, okay, so we like to ask also setups. Like what, what snowboard are you running? How do you set it up? What board? Boots, binding. Yeah, right now I'm riding a uh, Ride Berserker. Um, I was a Burton guy for a long time, but, uh, um, you know, things have changed over at the company and 
um, not really feeling the love that much anymore and uh, and it decided it was time for a change. So I gave Jake a call and rides really come through with like boards and boots and bindings and I'm loving the stuff. The Berserker in particular, which is something that Jake designed. Um, I knew I would love it because Jake designed it and I rode with him for a long time and uh, know what kind of a rider he is who wants high performance. And, um, and sure enough, the thing is an absolute beast. I love it. Um, so I'm riding the Berserker. Uh, like I said, I ride a wide stance because I tested Sean's stuff for so long and I kind of got used to it. So I think I'm like 24 inches. I'm 5'6", so it's pretty wide. But, uh, but it works for me. And, um, and then I'm 12, negative 9 on the angles. And I'm goofy foot. Dude's got a street stance up in here. Yeah. 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 Good looks. <laughs> yeah, that's a gangster stance. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, and then uh, what's next for Bud Keen? Well, coaching the the Canadian halfpipe team and uh, working on some books and stuff like that. Um, that's a little back, you know, back channel, but uh, professionally working with these Canadian halfpipe riders, uh, in particular Brooke DeHunt and Liam Gill. Um, sky's the limit. Those kids can do anything. And I'm super pumped and super fortunate to be working with them. And I love every minute of it. It's awesome. So Amazing. We can tell. Um, okay. And then I, I want to kind of throw one last thing in there. You know, there's a lot of up and coming, you know, snowboard kids trying to get in, figure it out. Uh, do you have any advice for anybody that's trying to make their way through this snowboard community um, before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're a kid out there trying to uh, to make it in the snowboard world, find out what you like to do, what type of snowboarding you like to do. I mean, do it all until you decide it's time to specialize. And uh, and if, it, if it's never time to specialize, that's fine too. Do it for the right reasons. Do it for the passion, for the good feeling, for, you know, keep yourself happy. Um, don't take unnecessary risks to try and impress people. I mean, I'm not going to say don't take risks because, like I said, this whole sport's about going big and doing stuff anyway. So there's going to come a point where you gotta you got to push it a little bit but uh, or a lot. But do it for the right reasons. Don't get hung up on sponsorship. If you ride your ass off and shine, you're going to get sponsored. It's going to happen. Um, don't, you know, just don't get into the, you know, there's a part of the culture that hates on certain other parts of the culture. Don't get drugged down by that. I mean, just keep an open mind. Be a snowboarder. We're all snowboarders. We're all doing it for the same reason, to have fun. Um, yeah, just keep your head on straight. Go out there and snowboard your ass off and get good, and you're going to make it, or you're not, and then you do something else. But you can always snowboard anyway. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Amazing, bud. Thanks for leaving us with that. Um, before we, we throw a bow on this thing, do you want to throw any thank yous? Thank you to uh, Will for Burton for the longtime support. Thank you for Ride for the current support. Um, thank you to everyone that I've ever, you know, used their gear or, um, you know, whatever or clothing or all that stuff. Thank you for to Jake for creating a sport and for Tom um, Sims for creating a sport whereby I've devoted my life and had a career. I mean. You know, I have a rad career and a rad lifestyle, and I feel very fortunate about it. But their vision is the one that, um, that, that created it and allowed me to follow this path. So thanks to them and thanks to Donna and, um, you know, all, their whole family. And, uh, yeah, thanks to 
anybody that helps me to, I mean, you know, I play a kid's game for a living. I feel pretty fortunate. So thanks everybody. Amazing, mm. bud. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. It's been a pleasure. Learned a lot on our end. And uh, I want to say thank you, Jones, for hosting. That was fun times. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, and Silk D. Thanks, Silk D. Thank yeah. you so much yes, to Silk. all of our sponsors that support the show, all of our Patreon members, everybody that buys merch, uh, everybody that listens. We really appreciate you guys. It's been a fun chat. we got another episode coming at you next Wednesday, over and out from the bomb hole. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, bud. Yeah. <laughs>